right, hello everybody. This is the Universal Dialect Show. I'm your host, Chris Cipher73 Cabrera, and I have an awesome guest today. This is show number eight, and her name is Varla Ventura. And like always, I before I introduce, I go through uh, your background a little bit. Um, you're a writer and an author, um, and I believe you have eight books, but there's some books that you have also co-authored as well. So that adds to it. So how many books do you do you think you're at right now? So I have six books that are like physical books that I've authored. Um, and then I did a series of books with um, my publisher that were released as eBooks only. And those were all kind of old stories. And um, I like to call them stories of forgotten lore where I would find an author or a story or some kind of folklore and then um, kind of explore that story. And so like, for example, there was one that was like a haunted house story by Charles Dickens. So those are all kind of in the, in the co-author category. Um, right. uh, although all the authors are actually dead. So. <laughs> Okay. All right. So on, <laughs> on top of being an author, co-author, you're also a para, paranormal investigator. And in your paranormal investigations, you're also a traveler and most notably a lover of the bizarre and the strange, which is right up my alley. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'd be remiss to, to not mention um, that you've been on radio shows and podcasts as podcasting was starting. And there's some of my favorite shows, uh, such as Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie and his crew, yeah. um, Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott and his awesome hair. Um, yes, he's got great hair. <laughs> now, the, now, the thing about Dave Scott is that he's a lover of hair, uh, but he has awesome hair himself. Yeah, yeah I don't know yeah. if he knows that. but I, <laughs> Oh, I think he knows he has awesome yeah, hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a weird guy where I'm a lover of hair because, you know, I just got like wavy hair. I wish I had like super long, you know, straight awesome hair with body it's just curly but um you've also been on beyond the strange with dave cruz i love and dave an, cruz i know dave cruz is awesome and there's another individual that i've talked to before and we've had you know communication back back and forth jeffrey Pr uh, pritchett of the church of mabus radio yeah. show yeah um, yeah he's great I, yeah he's awesome i interviewed him which is weird because i used to write for a music magazine um and i've known the editor and the creator of the magazine for many years and I just did primarily like because it's a, a an underground independent like rap magazine. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did because I'm into rap, but I'm also into metal. And I just had a conversation with the editor one day and I didn't realize he was into metal as well. And him and I had this great conversation about metal and like thrash metal, all this stuff. So I asked him, like, listen, is it OK if I just do reviews and interviews with just artists in general, not just rap? can I expand? And, you know, he trusted me and he was like, yeah, go ahead. And Jeffrey, I wound up just meeting him on Facebook. We wound up having a conversation and he's into music and is part of the music industry in the past. And I wound up interviewing him, combining both the music industry and paranormal together. And I did oh, a cool in the magazine. So that's how I know Jeffrey. Um, so those are your accolades, so to speak. I know there's many more. <laughs> um, Give me the uh, Varla uh, origin story, like where yeah. were you born and, and raised? Um, I know that a lot of times that has to do with what sets a person on their path, like where they were born and raised and, and the background. So give me a, a, your origin story and spare no details, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I was born in California and the San Francisco Bay Area and lived most of my life there. Um, my 
my mother is a practicing witch and a cultist. Um, and so I think that's probably, I've come to understand that that's fairly unique. Um, so she was born and raised in San Francisco. Um, we actually moved up to the foothills in um, Northern California when I was a kid and lived there through my teen years and then um, went back to San Francisco as soon as I, <laughs> as soon as I could, almost as soon as I could drive. <laughs> um, and then have had, you know, lived most of my life there. Um, and yeah, so my mom was just very un is a very unusual person. So uh, and I, and I say that you know with all love and respect. Right. Um, I mean, we grew up picnicking in cemeteries. We would um, we used to get like she'd do like laundry at this laundromat at the top of the hill in Daly City, and then we'd go over into Colma and hang out in all the cemeteries while we we're waiting for stuff to dry in the dryer. And we would just walk around. Sometimes we'd visit relatives. A lot of times we were just walking around kind of trying exploring, you know, people's, we used to walk around and just like make up what people's stories were. And then also try and figure out maybe who was related in different graveyards. And so living in the foothills, um, there's a lot of old pioneer cemeteries and a lot of unmarked graves <clears throat> and strange kind of like graves all on their own in the middle of the woods, which we found here and there. Um, so that we, we just would continue to do that. And then the the bookshelf that I grew up on, um, you know, I've always been a writer since I was a kid. And the bookshelf that influenced me was my mother's bookshelf, which had, you know, some classic occultists like Aleister Crowley and Dion Fortune, um, tarot books, astrology books, books about past life regression, time travel, fiction, nonfiction, um, a lot of horror. I grew up probably reading like you know, Stephen King way too young. Right, right. Um, yep. Yeah. I remember, I think I actually saw the shining when I was like still in preschool. So there you go. And I have a funny story about that since you said spare no detail. Yeah, I'm, go sure, ahead. I'm sure you've seen the movie, the shining, right. Where, yes. uh, yeah, but like Stanley Kubrick. So the first time I saw that, like I said, I was very young. We hadn't moved from the Bay area yet. So I must've been, I'm, you know, under like eight years old, but I remember being, having not having started school yet. So I was still in preschool, preschool age. And there's a scene in that movie where, I mean, there's lots of scenes in that movie right. that are super gruesome, right? There's a guy chasing the wife with the ax. There's the, the blood rushing out of the elevator, all that kind of stuff. Does my mom cover my eyes for any of that? No, she does not. She covers my eyes when the naked lady is in the room who then transforms into that like kind of like waterlogged hag who starts right. like, you know, um, like going it's after zombie. him. Yeah, yeah. So she covers my eyes for that, which she didn't cover very well. But I just thought that is just, I still give her a hard time about that. I was like, you didn't care if I saw like buckets of blood pouring down the stairs but you cared if I saw like a you know naked lady I think she didn't know what was going to happen because the movie had just come out you know so it was right, like so right. barely knew what she we better cover this one so anyway um yeah so I just grew up with um you know we didn't we didn't attend church on Sundays but we did um walk through the woods and harvest herbs and um looked for fairy glens and fairy circles and things like that so um, yeah, fairy tales were a huge part of my life that's definitely um, reflected in my strong interest in folklore and the collection of folklore wherever I travel. Um, you know, I actually 
one of the more recent trips I took with my mom, we went to Key West and we um, did a bunch of uh, the, you know, we tried to find all the like you know, haunted places and, and right. stores and a few pirates, of course. Um, so yeah, I mean, th those are just kind of like, and, and quite a few, of, I have quite a few siblings and most of them are so, at least somewhat interested in the paranormal. Um, all of them feel very comfortable in cemeteries. My what one of my sisters is probably the most um, who's closest in age to me is is the most interested in like the paranormal and she's really interested in Bigfoot and she lives still way up in the hills where, you know, you can hear the occasional Bigfoot holler anyway. So right, right. Yeah, so that's kind of the origin story. And then I just, um, you know, I was writing. I was actually working for a publisher as like an editorial assistant, super like you know low paid going through the manuscript yeah. yeah over the transom we used to say which is a term that they say in publishing for things that come unsolicited but it comes from the times when people would try and send things to publishers and they would um actually just like try and throw them in over the transom window over the door if they couldn't get someone to accept their manuscript they would put, put it up over there so we used to call it over the transom and um yeah, I just, I kind of just started putting, you know, I, I was writing and doing like things for some underground zines and things like that in San Francisco that were totally unpaid. And I'd kind of met a couple of other poets and writers and things. And I just sort of started at one point having a little bit of like, oh, maybe if I, um, you know, if I wrote something of like the things that I liked and I, and I approached the publisher about doing this book of like bizarre trivia and um, it actually ended up being really successful. And so that's kind of how I got, um, you know, I was able to publish several more books with them. Awesome. So, yeah. so just so just so you know, you're not alone with the wackiness, you know, in your upbringing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I, I remember growing up and, and, and uh, reading Helter Skelter. Oh, oh, you know, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I remember my mother buying like the the old school crime magazines where you have yeah. the typical cover of like a half naked chick tied up, and uh -huh. you have the burglar with the knife. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> Those, you know. So you're not the only one that grew up like crazy. You know, see, having weird things around you in the house. Um, yeah, yeah. Dark parents. Yes. Dark mind. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so you know, it, and it look where you're at right now. So I mean, it, it, it was there was something good that came out of that. I'm <laughs> sure our parents are very proud of us, right? Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned that your mother was a witch and you said that it was unusual, but it was that unusual in your mind or was that unusual no. other people's perception of her and you knowing that? So I never thought it was unusual until, you know, I was kind of in my twenties and gallivanting around, um, gallivanting around the world and um it it turned out that you know a lot of the people that I knew grew up with more normal I I don't know like that the idea of being a witch is such a natural normal thing to me um it's not something that comes out of books it's not something that you um I mean you can study and there's all there's the, the world of witchcraft is very vast. Right. But there's something very instinctual that I understand about it. And so um, I, re I do remember being at this party one time when there were like all of, it was actually like an, um, an OTO party. So it was the, 
you know, Crow the Crowleyites. Crowley, yes, the Crowley, yes. The and Crowley. my friend snuck me in. She was right. a Crowleyite, but I wasn't. But she snuck me in, and I remember her saying, "Oh, don't worry, you know, her her mother and her grandmother are witches or something like that." And I just right. thought, "Oh, that's funny. This is like." This is like Hogwarts or something like they're sneaking me in because I'm I'm a muggle or whatever. And um, I I understand I, I came to understand and I, this is no critique at all of people who dedicate their lives in the, the to the study of of witchcraft. And I do know quite a few people who are um, practitioners of initiatory witchcraft, which is a much more like dedicated, um, <clears throat> formalized in a sense. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a big, deep step that I have not taken. Um, and Why? I don't really want to. Right, okay. It, it doesn't interest <laughs> I mean, there's been times where I've been, uh, like, what interests me is the stuff that they withhold when they're, when, you know, you're talking to somebody and they're like, well, that's, you know, that's for an initiate. Like, it interests me, this, the secret society element of it, right. it interests me. Um, so are there levels to it? Is that what you're saying? Like maybe yeah. you start as like a initiate, like you said, and then you're kind yeah, of like, absolutely. It's just like the OTO. There's like all of these right. different kinds of like initiatory witchcraft. There's Alexandria and there's all of these different kinds. And, um, I've also always been a kind of a solitary person. My mom always had her little kind of like coven. I mean, she never called it, even called it a coven. It was just like coven of girlfriends that they would, you right. know, do like, um, you know, full moon rituals and things like that, or celebrate, you know, the May Day and um, Halloween and things. But um, I think, yeah, so as far as her being a witch, I mean, in the, in the world that I lived in, it was very normal. And actually, as a teenager, I had quite a few friends whose, whose parents maybe didn't necessarily identify as witches but they were a little bit more he heathen raised the way I was and um <laughs> heathen raised yeah and like one of them his mother he's a wonderful artist and his mother was a professional is a professional astrologer and would do like past life regressions and was like a psychotherapist so he kind of understands that template of like just growing up with this like strong occult base um that I just kind of took for granted just like any you know but then if you try if you quote something to the bible to me i will have absolutely like no clue like i'll be like okay that sounds so, sounds right to me like i can't verify Wait, that you know i got you yes so my base is just um and so i think like i think it was not unusual to me until um, it was sort of pointed out to me like, wow, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of unusual. Is it? Uh, maybe not as unusual as I think, but yes, I mean, I would say people whose mothers are witches are probably in the minority. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but so, we find each other, right? So it's right. okay. <laughs> that's all that matters, right? The energy sinks up and you got, and, and yeah. you find each other. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I don't even know, like she loves, she loves being a witch and doing witchy things, but like, she never walked around saying, well, I'm a witch. So blah, blah, blah. It was just like, you under, you know, right. you, you just knew. <laughs> so so what about witchcraft? What is it about witchcraft that people don't know about? Can you tell me something about it? Like, you know, the general thing is, you know, we all know what a witch from the TV and, and fiction is, but yeah. what is a real witch? Do you can, do you have an answer for that? Like, what what is it about a witch that people or information about a witch or or, or uh, just something about being a witch that people don't know? 
Well, I think one thing that gets really misconstrued is the difference between um, like Wiccan and, and being a witch. And, um, you know, Wiccanism is this very like, it's a very new form of witchcraft, um, really kind of like the 60s and the 70s. And it's based on a lot of British traditions. So, and then it also can be kind of pan-cultural, but it just, I think that there's this idea and in popular culture has really, you know, especially like TV shows and stuff, being a Wiccan, it, you probably identify as a witch, but being a witch, you, you may well not identify as a Wiccan. And there are many different kinds of witches, just as there are many different kinds of words for witchcraft, for, for witches, right? There's, right. there's Bruja, for example, which is yes. not exactly the same thing as being, I mean, it's, it's another word for witch, but right. it's embracing a different aspects of what that means. And so, and then the other thing that actually kind of, I find a little irritating about like just the idea of being a Wiccan or that Wiccan culture as kind of, um, ruined for witches in a way or um just kind of misconstrued is this like harm none idea um witches have to fight back right to prepare their reputation from being you know thought i mean we we have been demonized right witches have been demonized right. um from the witch trials through you know i mean a, a, any kind of magical practitioner has been called um, uh, a devil or in being in cahoots with the devil. So there's, there's, there's long been like this negative connotation. Or if you're and an alternative so, person, you get considered a witch or something. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I, it, you could wear a pentagram and everybody just assumes that you're, you're satanic. And right. it's like, I, I can't even begin to explain <laughs> how that, first of all, you got to believe in God to believe in Satan. Right. So <laughs> you got to kind of like lay the groundwork, but yeah. So the, the idea of like, you know, kind of the, the harm none idea now, granted that I think that some of the, the ideas that came about, especially in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, uh, introducing with British witches in particular in, in the United States, um, the idea that witches are actually healers, that's completely true. The, you know, the wise woman or the person who was in the village that you would come to for all manner of things. It could be you know, to cure your, um, your broken heart. It could be to ensnare someone. It could also just be actual medicine, you know, because you didn't have a doctor. And if you did have a doctor, it was, you know, way away, you know, two days ride away or whatever. So you came to rely on these kind of country healers. And so there's an, there's an element of that obviously in witchcraft. And I think that witches were kind of trying to push back against the idea that, that all witches were evil and in cahoots with the devil, right? As a result of that, there's been this understanding that witches, there's this like harm none. It's actually even called the Wiccan read, which I've read a few things lately that even put that in question. Like, we don't know where that really came from. And that is that like, you know, it's like, it's the harm none or whatever you do comes back to you threefold, like that whole kind of um, law. But in reality, witches are all about getting shit done, right? So right. if that means that you need to um, stop someone in their tracks, 
you know, witches are not above that. So I think that putting all witches into like one bucket is very difficult. But I think that most witches would agree that um, you don't exactly go about, you know, hexing willy nilly. But if you need to, those are the tools at your disposal. And you use them as responsibly as you can and you accept the consequences for that. So that's probably the biggest thing I think is misunderstood is that, um, you know, witches are all nice and they just want to heal you, you know, right. it's like, yeah, I mean, they, they can be really helpful. Um, but, um, if somebody has wronged me, I'll tell you the first person I call is my mommy. <laughs> take so have take you care seen, of some stuff. <laughs> so have you seen your mom do things that have like boggled your mind that you haven't, that you were like, wow, I've never seen anybody do something like that before. Well, I've seen the results of things. Right. She's very private about the actual um, ritual part, for sure. But um, yeah, there's been a few uh, things, even even of late. Um, a couple. I, I, I don't want to get her in legal trouble, so I'll just no, leave no, those off the table. <laughs> I mean, we don't know how he died, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but there was something kind of cool that happened. I think it was about probably about three years ago. And my mom called me up and she was like, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe what happened in my garden. And so what had happened is her garden, you know, was, I don't even know what month it was, but her garden wasn't really thriving. And she had planted like, you know, some, some pumpkins and some tomatoes and just, you know, like her little vegetable garden and a few plants in her garden. She has this like dedicated fairy well, and she's really taken up a lot of fairy magic. Lately. <clears throat> she's always been kind of interested in fairies and fairy culture, but she sort of ritualized it and, and put it in. Um, and the idea of the fairy well is that you sort of make like this place in your garden. That's like, um, not only just for the fairies, but the, the well is a way to go into the underground, which, I mean, we can talk about fairies, like people do definitely have a misconception of fairies as being these like Tinkerbell like things. And right. the fairy world is actually incredibly dark and there's a lot of forces at play there. Um, so it's the underground, right? It's the other world. There's also a lot of crossover between, um, you know, the world of like ghosts and the unseen and the, the fairy kingdom. Anyway, so she went, it was full moon and she went down to her fairy well and she, she did some kind of ritual and she called me up the next day and she said, I don't know, you're not going to believe this. You are not going to believe this, but my garden, everything's flowering. There's fruit. The pumpkins have gotten bigger. And so I called my sister who lives very close to her. And I was like, is this like, did you see like, you know, because like, I can't see it, right? And my sister said, my sister's definitely more skeptical than I am. And she said, you know, I was down there two days ago and there was nothing. And I came back that next day after she had done this full moon thing. And it was like, she said everything had double. It was just insane. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I believe you. I mean, I believed my mom, but I was just kind of wanted like some visual verification. And she said, yes, it did. So there's been a few things like that that have definitely been um, pretty strong. And then the other day, something very interesting happened. Um, I had some friends visiting and I, uh, where I live now, I, I haven't had too many paranormal experiences in, in the house. I've had a couple out in the like, you know, greater um, 
like a cemetery nearby. I've had a couple mm -hmm. of things happen over there, but I hadn't really had anything happen in the house except maybe when I had first moved in. And so I was, I was laying in bed and I had two friends visiting. It was my friend um, and her daughter and they were kind of sleeping down here in this room. And um, I heard um, a woman's voice and it was saying, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And I thought it was my friend. And I thought, oh, maybe her daughter, her daughter's a teenager, but I, didn't, I thought something had happened that it really upset her. And I was like hearing her through the vents or something like that, you know? And so I kind of waited and it, and then it sounded like it was like at in, in my stairwell. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just going to give them a minute. And then if they need me, they'll come and get me, or I'll just get up and turn the kitchen light on or whatever. And I kept hearing it. I kept hearing it. And then it just kind of stopped. And so the next day when they got up, um, I said, is everything okay? Like I, and, and they were like, yeah, we slept great. And I said, you guys didn't wake up in the middle of the night and you weren't comforting her or nope, nope. We, and in fact, my friend said, the first thing I've said all day is good morning when I saw you. And I was like, okay, that's kind of strange. Well, I couldn't really figure it out because it was, I was so convinced it was them. I hadn't, you know, you know how paranormal experiences happen like that. It don't happen. <laughs> and it doesn't, you're not like, oh, I'm having a paranormal experience right. right now. You're trying to explain it, right? You're like completely trying to explain it to yourself or just, you just, it's, it's sometimes even the furthest thing from your mind. I, there was absolutely no part of me that thought there's a ghostly voice in my right. house right now. Every part of me was like, is everything okay? Is right. she okay? You want, you want to attach it to something logical. Right. Of course. Until you find yeah. out it's not. <laughs> Until you find out it's not. And then you're, then the hairs on your neck kind of stand yeah. up. Exactly. So my mom had been, um, she had been in the hospital and she was home at that time. Nope. Was she still in the hospital? I, I think she was, the, it was either the night before she got home or was the, um, the night after she got home, but she was very, she was very sick. And, um, she, so I talked to her about this, like four or five days later, I was like, ma, something actually happened in my house. I never really had anything like this before. And she burst into tears and she said, that was me. You heard me. And then I thought about it and I was like, actually, it did sound like my mom. It did. It sound what I thought it was, was a mother comforting right. her daughter. Right. And I thought, and I said, well, this is what the woman was saying. She said, that was me. And I was really scared because I was really sick. And then she reminded me that there was another time that she had done that, that she had sort of like projected herself. Right. And it was my brother and he had been out. My brother's a firefighter in California and he had been out on a call um, somewhere else, like a county over. And they got a call that there was a fire really close to their house and they live up in the woods. And my mom, like in her mind, screamed for my brother to come home. And he got home as fast as he could. And he told her, I heard you, wow. I heard you calling me. So that's, I mean, that's, Either way, either either whether it was a ghost or my mom, it, it still um, was a, a paranormal experience. And I have heard of people being able to do that, um, but my mom seemed to do it almost like without not not without meaning to, but 
um, I think she wanted someone to hear her because she was really scared. And you know, your mom's usually not the one that shows the the fear, right? right so I don't know. It was strong. just a very, yeah, yeah. It was just a very, it was a very interesting and very strange, another kind of paranormal right. experience beyond just. Um, I shouldn't say just seeing ghosts or whatever, but like, you know, a little bit different, um, like some kind of projection. Yeah. That you're like, wow. Okay. That, that's, that's new. Can I, I was kind of like, whoa, all right. Are you going to keep doing that? Or <laughs> like but why through the vents? a regular <laughs> thing. <Yeah. laughs> why not through the phone or something? Why through the vents, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you said you had some, experiences can you get into some of those experiences yeah sure I, and i'd love to hear about i mean i know you've probably talked about them before but i'd love to hear about some of yours um i mean i've just had experiences since i was a kid i mean like just it, like they became pretty regular and i'll credit my mom for being the person who did not make me afraid of any of those things and that's probably that that's actually maybe the the quintessential um uh, real difference is that I think, and, and I totally get it. Cause as a parent myself, I get it. Like your, your response to things that are scary in the world is to like protect and, and shelter your children from that. But sometimes if you, um, don't talk about those things or you dismiss those things, it actually does more harm than good. And so, um, like a super early example I can give is that, you know, like many kids, I was having a nightmare and I woke up and I was crying about this nightmare where I had, was like running through a field and I fell in this giant hole. And my mom said, okay, well, why don't you just dream that we had a great day? And she said, why don't you just go back to sleep, have that exact same dream, run through that exact same field, fall in that same hole. But this time when you're in the bottom of the hole, call for the dog and have the dog come and drop a rope and pull you out. So instead of just saying it was just a dream or it's just a nightmare, she taught me how to lucid dream. And when you're three years old, and so I did exact, and it, I did exactly that. I went to sleep, I ran through the field, I fell in the hole, I felt scared, I called the dog, the dog's face showed up over the hole, dropped down a rope, pulled me out, and I never had a nightmare again. That's but it, it made me realize that you actually do have, it made me realize at an age that was too young to fully comprehend that you have control in your dreams. Right. Um, so, so that's, you know, and then just numerous times. Um, uh, I mean, my mom got us a Ouija board when we were kids, my sister and I, and we definitely made contact with something. She took it away because <laughs> we, I don't uh, think she, I do not think she thought we were going to actually make contact. I don't know if she had really thought it through. Like, I almost feel like it was a gift she got us that, I mean, it was the eighties. So like everyone got Ouija boards, you know yeah. what I mean? Like <laughs> an 80s child. But, so yeah. Yeah. So it was like the Parker brothers one. And I remember yeah. we thought it was going to be like monopoly or life or something. And then we're like, Oh, a Ouija board. Okay, mom. Um, and she, I, I, it's almost like, I think she maybe wanted it for herself and she got it for us for Christmas. I've totally done that to my own son before. I'm like, don't you, don't you want this nightmare before Christmas doll? <laughs> um, so I don't know if you could see it. Oh, see. Oh, Jack. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so great. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I just, um, my sister and I were, I, I don't know that she thought we were going to actually make contact with it or something or, or with anything. And so we, my sister and I had been doing it a few times, like with no results. And then we started doing it and we made contact with something that said it was like another little girl. And, uh, when my, <laughs> there, there, there was this like solitary grave on my parent, like the property next to my parents that was like in the middle of the woods that we've yet to solve who this person was because, um, one of my friends growing up who now still lives in the area is an archaeologist and specializes in like graveyards. And, um, he, he thinks it's very unusual because it's one, it seems like it wouldn't be by itself. And two, it's a little girl, but it's got a marble headstone and footstone, which is very expensive and where they were or where they are. I mean, that would have been from like the Sacramento Valley, that would have probably been like a three day haul just to get this stone up there. So it's definitely an unusual, an unusual thing. Um, but anyway, so we were like, oh, we made contact with, um, the, I think the grave, the name on the grave is Elise or whatever. And, and whether we, whether we actually made contact with that, that's what it was, but that's what it spelled out on there. And my mom just got really like, and then she just yeah. kind of walked in the room. She, she, I just remember her walking through. She's like, "Oh, what are you girls doing?" And we're like talking to, we're like little creepy in unison, talking to a ghost named Elise. Oh, talking to a ghost on the Ouija board. What? Uh, it's it's the little girl. It's the little girl from that grave. We told her, and my mom, she just like froze, and then she walked in, and she just, I'll never forget, because she like took that Ouija board and she right. just scooped it up closed it, planch it inside, put it under her arm, marched out of there. And, um, later I asked her and she told like, you know, late, I said, why'd you do that? And she's like, I can't guarantee that you girls, um, you know, you might open something you can't close. And we don't know if that's what that actually was. It could have been anything, not just that little girl. And I didn't fully understand what she was talking about, but I do right. remember when I was doing it, my sister, when it was moving without me pushing it, I looked at my sister and I could tell by the house, this is my big sister. I could tell by how like scared she looked that she wasn't pushing it. And I knew I wasn't pushing it. And we still talk about it occasionally this day. And I was like, no, I swear I was not pushing that. I don't know what happened there. We're like, oh, okay. So, um, then yeah, I, I, I've asked her, I've asked my mom about it a few times since then. And, and she said, she just really felt like, I mean, it's not unlike you would protect your kids from the internet in a way, right? right. Like you have no way of knowing that the person is who they say they are. Exactly. Um, so you don't know that that's another 13 year old playing with your kid on the video games, right? Like you're Correct. assuming that they haven't been able to pass through all the filters, but you don't know. And I, you can kind of apply that to like, I think people get very scared about Ouija boards and I'm not particularly frightened of them myself. And I've had other experiences with them. It's more about the, the people who are using them and whether or not they know what they're doing and how responsible they're, they're being with them. Um, but two little kids are not capable of 
being responsible. I mean, right. you know, but you you're eight years old, you right? don't know. I mean, you and your sister open something. And Definitely talk to it, something. And is it true that once you open this, you have to somewhat close it? You can't just, you can't just like walk away from it. From what I, I mean, understand. Yeah. I, I presumably my mom did something because we never had any problems. Okay. The house wasn't haunted right. or anything like that. Right, right. I should your ask mom, her actually. She probably, yeah. we, we laugh because years later we, uh, I said, what did you do with the Ouija board? Cause I know you, I know you didn't just throw it away and I know you didn't burn it. Cause I would have caught you doing that. And she said, she said, I can't remember. I can't remember. Then one day she called me up and she said, you know what? I remember. She said, I don't know what I did with the planchet. But I used it under my um, mouse on the computer when she got her first computer. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I had this memory and I was like, that's right. There was an old Ouija board. That was the same. Yeah. Okay. So I feel, I don't think it's around anymore. Well, she it used it as a mouse pad. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's all smoothly. It's yeah, like a yeah. board game, right? <laughs> that's smart, actually. It was a mouse pad. Yeah. <laughs> actually, how cool would that be if your mouse was a planchette? And your mouse pad was the was a Ouija board. That would be, that cool, would be dope. cool invention, yeah, right? I'd buy dope. one. Yeah. You know what? Go for it. Not that I use a mouse anymore, but I would if it was shaped like a planchette for sure. <laughs> no, I, I've had a Ouija board experience. I've had, and then you talked about like different, like witchcraft, how it's different in different cultures, like bruja, which yeah. you know in Latin that's you know witch. I, yeah. I've had an experience with a bruja. Um, all right, so let, let's let's shift wait, gears. Wait, wait, can I just ask you? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Can go I ahead. ask you what your Ouija board experience was? Okay, so um, it's kind of a long story. I'll try to shorten it the best that I can, okay? So I'm originally from New York City. Um, I grew up in the ghettos of New York City. And then we, my mother moved me and my brother, and she was married to another man at the time, so I was my stepfather, to Central Florida, where I'm living right now. Um. And I always say this saying, ghetto kids hang out with ghetto kids, no matter where you're from. So if you move from one city to another and you're from the ghetto, you're going to find other kids that are grew up the same way, you know, that you have uh, similarities to. So ghetto kids hang out with ghetto kids. And I was hanging out with a, with a group and it was this female. Her name was Dina, I believe, Tina or Dina. And, you know, she had a rough upbringing like, like myself. And uh, we hung out. And one day she invites me over to our apartment. Um, now coming from the North where I, I dealt with racism there, but not as much moving to the South. And this is in the nineties. Cause like I said, I'm an eighties kid. I was born in the seventies and I grew up in, you know, in the eighties, yeah. I come to the South. It's extremely racist here. So yeah. she, a Caucasian female, um, you know, a person of color, you know, I have a Latin background. Her right. dad was extremely racist and didn't want her hanging out with people of color. So I took a risk by going to her apartment and hanging out with her and some other friends there. And so uh, her telling me her background with, you know, her mom leaving them because, you know, she was a drug addict and the dad having his own issues. Um, she was already like had this energy or aura around her that was negative. And I also had it as well because of my upbringing. So I guess we attracted each other, you know? Yeah. So we, I went to the apartment and this was like at nighttime with, people I didn't even know they were friends of hers and they did they they obviously had this set up it was supposed to be us just hanging out drinking like Zimas you know bottles <laughs> bottles of beans you know like you know what I'm talking about like you know bottles of beans, Zimas, you know like the, the corny stuff but yeah, um, yeah they obviously had it set up um and somebody pulls out a Ouija board I don't know if it was the Parker Brothers one 
and they had candles like how you have a candle behind you that had candles all set up and so we started messing around with the Ouija board and then you know it started to move the plants just started to move and and you know always or most of the time somebody's like oh who moved it oh you moved it and everybody's yeah. arguing oh you moved it but it was moving and at first it started out fine you know people were asking questions but uh the female that I knew, uh, someone that she had known had passed away recently. And she had asked this being or, or the spirit or whatever it was, what the name was, and it spelled out that person's name. Now, in hindsight, and all the things that I've watched, and, you know, I've heard you talk about Ouija before and other people, it could be a, a, a deception. It, it, it might not be that person's spirit. It could be what they call a demon or an evil entity that's portraying themselves as that spirit. Because, you know, I feel like once you start messing with the Ouija board, you open something up, a portal, and you allow things to come through. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can allow the wrong thing through, okay? So as she's talking to the spirit, I guess at first I thought it was the flickering of the candles, but I saw things moving in the background, like the dishes in the background. I saw like the door to the bathroom, closing slowly and opening slowly. But I thought it was my eyes playing tricks on me. So I, I continued with this. So at the end, uh, this thing spells out um, kill and some other like negative things. She started freaking out and crying. And then the, the board, somebody said they didn't do it, but the board flipped. Okay. I, I've had and, that happen actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The board flipped. I don't know if somebody did it, but the board flipped and we just ended it there. So maybe like a week later, I'm going to see how she's doing. And she told me that things after that weren't the same. In other words, um, she, she would see shadow people, which is something Yikes. my whole life I've, I've seen. I have a relationship, love, hate with shadow people. They've <laughs> bothered me my whole life. They're even affecting my kids, actually. But um, my whole life, I've had shadow people. So she said, I've, I've been seeing shadow people. She's like, there's times where I go, I'll go in and I'll take a shower and nobody's home. My dad's not home or anybody. And when I come out, there's messages written on the mirror, you know, from the fog. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she said even her dad, who was a grumpy person anyway, was even more grumpy, like his behavior changed. And he was doing like, she said, oh, he's drinking more. And um, he's, he's just acting out a lot more, you know? And then I found out like maybe a year later, cause I would ask people that knew her, like, do you know what happened to her? And they said that she had gone crazy. And that was oh, the geez. last that I heard. But I don't know if it's, again, I don't know if that, that part is true. I just know that we had that experience and it wasn't a good one. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if like, part of the effectiveness of the Ouija board is that like when you do other rituals and things like one of the things that you do is frequently like you'll do it within a circle or people will like join hands um you even see people doing that when they're praying right they'll all join hands and bow their heads and everybody's focusing on one very specific thing and with the Ouija, you sort of have like everyone kind of putting their fingers and all of their concentration into this one thing. But with ritual, 
and obviously there's more responsible ways to do the Ouija, but like with ritual, you're prepping yourself for that type of thing. Even if it's just something as simple as, you know, just kind of like setting intention or creating like a protective circle around the people that are there. Cause there are people um, that will conduct, you know, seances that they invite, you know, you can, you can join in, but they're done with a lot of reverence and responsibility. And, um, and then it's closed. Like the ritual is closed. Rituals are always closed. When you do something like some kind of magical group ceremony, the, the ritual is closed. It comes to an end. You do something with the leftover ingredients, but the Ouija board is almost like the middle part of a ritual without the beginning and the end. And maybe that's why it becomes so um, like so powerful because you have all this mindset focusing on it, but also why it can be used so irresponsibly because it's like a conduit that isn't, you know, and then you've, it's, you've got usually teenagers or young people using it a right. lot, right? Without, without any prior knowledge. So I think that that can all um, really exacerbate like whatever kind of portal is opening. Right. Definitely. I, I, be, I, be, I believe you, you're right because uh, like you said, a lot of young people that use it, they're not in control really of themselves. If you think yeah, about it. Yeah, good point. Right. They're still learning. Yeah. Um, like I, I know when I go through and you probably agree with me as an adult, when you have a, uh, let's say a bad situation, you know how to control that to where when you meet with people, they don't have to know that you had a bad day, let's yeah. say. Yeah. But with young people, they don't know how to control that. And I think when yeah. they start messing with the Ouija board, that creates energy. Yeah, and if a lot it's of the subconscious energy, even, right? right? It's just yes. like whatever stuff people have going on right. and they don't have the ability to filter that out and like, you know, they don't take cleansing breaths, right? Right. <laughs> Before the meeting, they right. just go into it like yeah with all that sort of wild um frenetic energy and there's you no also, school right like, there's no school on how to use a ouija board like no right. lessons you know and and also i think like you you have the other kind of part of that is you know kids teenagers young adults not only are they not really in control of their own like emotions but they don't have that much control in their own lives Right. And when you right. have a difficult, um, a difficult home life, you don't, you feel really powerless and you're looking for, and will accept power from places that, um, you know, will lead you into temptation and down. I mean, that's why you have so many kids who come from abusive homes, um, just ending up, you know, doing drugs and alcohol because you're looking for some kind of power. You're looking for some kind of way to feel like you're the one making the decision, right. not all these adults around you who are making decisions for you that are really negatively affecting you. Right. So I'm, I think I'm not a that, religious person, but um, I know that, that there's the reason why people go to like Satanism is because I, I've read the, the Satan, you know, the Satanic Bible before. Mm -hmm. It's very empowering. Mm -hmm. yeah actually um, it is yeah it's a very empowering like uh religion and book even though I'm not a religious person I don't believe like really in religion but like when I read it it's very empowering I could see the temptation of wanting to feel empowered particularly if you've grown up a tumultuous life you know yes absolutely and I think also like I mean I've 
there have been times when I wish that I what I mean, I've never like wished that I've been a religious person, but there have been times when um boy, it sure would have been easy to just, you know, blame blame God for that and just like, you know, move on. So I, I once heard a comedian, I, I want to say it was like Maria Bamford or something. I heard a comedian say something like, like God is the lazy parents, like best friend. <laughs> Cause you can just, you know, blame, well, well, no, God's watching, <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, yeah. And I mean, so I, I will just say like, I certainly had, um, like I had my mother and I had like that, like strength of her, um, witchcraft, but, um, it, I, I don't, I wouldn't really want to go into it in great detail, but I didn't grow up with like a very peaceful childhood. There was a lot of, um, violence and, um, just a lot of like poverty around, um, in my household. So I think that anytime you have that, as you said, you do 10 and you, it, you also have to be really careful and certainly like the kind of people that you're attracted to. I mean, you're very vulnerable, right? It's almost like kids that grow up in that kind of situation are, are more vulnerable because they're really looking for something that's going to be the right thing for them. Because the one thing that's supposed to be right, which is home, isn't right. Right. And so you're looking at all these outside sources um, but I'm fortunate that my mom was always kind of an anchor in her own way and that I had that sort of influence of, I guess it's not exactly religion, but it is that sort of like other world that, um, to kind of like fall back on. So, so, you know, uh, you, oh, go, just pull a tarot card. There you go. There you <laughs> See go. what it says. It'll solve everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'll tell you what to do. <laughs> all right so you you mentioned um and i was gonna i was gonna go down memory lane but you i, I have to go back to this because I, i'm really interested in like the works of alistair crowley mm-hmm. now um there's all these different things about alistair that people talk about he's not a good person you know he started this oto you know it deals with satanic you know background i mean can you clarify some of that Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. sure. So I, I, I don't think there was any ever any Satanism involved in the OTO and there isn't to this day. Um, I'm not a member of the OTO, but I have worked in an editorial capacity on a few books um, by some pretty esteemed members. Now for and those so who don't of, know, what is OTO? I'm sorry. To it's, it stands for Ordo. I'm going to get my, my uh, occult card revoked okay. here in a second. O- right. o- Ordo. Templi Orientalis. There you go. And it's, it's, is, is that right? Is that right? Yeah. Different, and different. it's, it's the um, organization that was, is based on the teachings of Aleister Crowley, specifically um, what he wrote in the Book of the Law. And for those who don't know, the Book of the Law was not written as rules. It's actually basically like this one long channeled poem. Um, Crowley was in Egypt and basically was in one of the temples and went into trance and grabbed his pen and went and wrote down, um, what he felt were some divine instructions for how to conduct oneself in, um, in a living a magical life. So there's, he was of course called many things. He was called the wickedest man in the world. 
actually one of my first introductions to Alistair Crowley, which was probably a good, a good introduction, was through this book called The Diary of a Witch by Sybil Leake. And Sybil Leake, um, her son lives in central Florida, actually. I really? Believe. No way. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sybil Leake was a British witch who um, is of, you know, in the in the world of witchcraft, she's renowned. She kind of became most famous during that time in like the 60s and 70s when like astrology and tarot were bestsellers. And so she had quite a few, quite a few books that were on the um, bestseller list and, you know, were put out in like the little pulp paperbacks. And she was a practicing witch. Um, she had a raven that uh, she kind of was like her constant companion. She had a pet raven. It's just this like marvelous. But anyway, I so I my introduction to her was a book on my mom's bookshelf called Di The Diary of a Witch. And it's her autobiography about how she learned witchcraft and how she came to be a witch. Um, and, you know, she's a British witch of heritage. Um, she uh, learned from you know, a very young age, what witchcraft was. She had, I think, an uncle who was a, a mentor. She actually knew Crowley and they kind of were in circles together because, you know, the, the pool of people who were really actually serious about the occult world and the occult sciences and the occult arts was small, um, especially, you know, after all the years of hiding underground. And um, she, she kind of described it, she described him in this great way in that book. And she basically describes him almost like, she almost like chides him like a brother. Okay. And she sort of describes him as this very intelligent man who um, sort of like poked the bear, I guess. It, those aren't her words, but basically he had a couple paths he could go and he went down this one path. And then when, you know, when people start calling you the wickedest man in the world, what are you going to do? You got, you can fight it all you want, or you can accept that the people around you know who you really are and what you're trying to teach. And everyone else can just call you, you know, you no publicity is bad publicity, right? They can suck it. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. And so he, I learned a lot about him working on this one project with, um, uh, Lon Milo Duquette. He was working on a book, um, that was like sort of excerpting from the equinox and the equinox was like this regular journal that Crowley would put out. And, um, there are like, I want to say there's like 15 different equinoxes or whatever. And there, you can find them in like big volumes, but there's not, they, they never really ever came back into print again, but they're actually, there's all these Easter eggs in there. And so like, for example, even though Crowley was, you know, totally you know, said he was like this really evil, wicked man, he had like this really great sense of humor. And he actually would like give himself scathing reviews in the Equinox. And so he had like all these different pen names. And you'd read this review and I was like, Diary of a, a Drug Fiend. This is absolute, you know crap I don't know who wrote this and then it's the it's the the review is by Crowley totally like criticizing himself and so he would do all of these different things kind of to combat like the um probably the the negative pressure that he got from um all of that negative publicity 
Um, but you know, there's you you have you certainly had um, some some very upright citizens calling him all kinds of names. But he also the other thing that was happening in the occult world a lot, and especially in the in in that time when you know the early twenties, is that you had. Um, you know, you had even even prior to that. I mean, there's this like amazing woman in the 1890s um, who Blav- whose name was Blavatsky. Um, Blavatsky was one of the was one of them, but there was a woman named Ida Craddock, and okay. she actually was like she channeled all of these entities, but she also was like a sex educator and like an early devotee of yoga, and she was like a super like wealth well off. Um, she was raised by a single mother, but she was like a well-off white woman in the 1890s in Chicago acting as a sex educator. And this was before women were even allowed to vote. They couldn't really right. do much unless their husbands approved. And right. so she was pretty <laughs> radical. Um, but that was the thing is that within a lot of these occult, the kind of underlying thing that was so scandalous was this idea of like sex magic or talking about sex or doing anything that had to do with sex that wasn't like exactly that just, I mean, sex just wasn't talked about, you know, it just was, was not. And so I think that that was a big part of kind of, you know, there was this mystery of like, Oh, he had all these different women and what was going on there. And I don't really know. I don't know all the answers, but I mean, you know, hey, each his own. <laughs> like I said, exactly. I was raised in San Francisco. To yeah. Each his own. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think, but there, there was a, there's a, a revolutionary element of that that really upsets people who are really uptight and in control and probably like you know up. Conventional members of and, and churchgoers, you know, right. that was a, a poor, poor idocratic was was persecuted by um, this guy named Anthony Comstock, and he was the head of the suppression of moral vice. So he was huh? basically, yeah, it was like he was based in New York in the um, I think it was like the 1860 to 18, I think he died in like early, early twenties or something like that. And there was a society for the suppression of moral vice. And he was the head of that. And he yeah, was basically he, like, I made that shit up. <laughs> he was probably into it. Yeah. An it was ego. like, you know, don't show an ankle. Don't smoke. Um, don't talk about sex. Only do what your husband says. And he ended up actually, um, he persecuted Idocratic for like six or seven years and he ended up, he became postmaster general and conducted this two year long investigation and finally arrested Idocratic for the distribution of lewd materials because she had written this thing called the wedding night. And the wedding night was basically like a little bit of a um, dear young bride. This is what to expect. And it's, pretty explicit even by today's standards but it's not gross it's just like you know and it's actually to it's it's not just to young women it's also like there's some there's some stuff in there like to the to the groom to be trust me you don't want to be drunk on your wedding night you will not be able to perform is basically what she says I mean like but you can imagine 18 whatever and this this lady's even putting that stuff in print so he ended up actually um arresting her and um trying her 
convicting her. And then she, and she wrote, she, she killed herself and she, she put two letters out one to her mother. Um, and then the other letter was to Anthony Comstock. And she was like, my blood's on your hands. I would rather die than go. She was sentenced to like life in a, um, home for the criminally insane, you know, oh. women who are criminally insane, which yeah. is of course going to be horrendous. Um, but the tie to Crowley is that I read this little piece by Ida Craddock um, when I was working on that, kind of just going through um, all the stuff in the Equinox. And I read this little thing um, in the Equinox and I asked Lana, I was like, who's, there's not that many women that appear in here. Who is this? And he said, oh, you should talk to Veer Chappelle. And Veer was, is the guy that wrote a book about it. And um, so he could just kind of filled me in on her incredible story. And he looked at it more from the, so the reason it's in the Equinox is because Crowley reviewed it and Crowley found that um, Ida Craddock, in addition to being a sex educator, um, actually claimed that all of her knowledge came from an angelic being and that she was not actually married to a human man, but she was married to an angelic being named Sof who visited her nightly and gave her all the information she needed, spiritual and practical. And that's where her writings came from. And so Crowley reviewed this other thing that she had written called The Spiritual Bridegroom, which was about her encounters with this angelic being. And he said that based on what he read and his, that she had actually tapped into something that you work toward in the OTO. So he, after she died, made her like an honorary fourth degree or something like that. So that, that's how I found out about her was in this thing um, from Crowley. So... Yeah. So the OTO still exists and, and who runs yeah. that now? So I know that Juan Milo Duquette is still involved. I'm not sure if he's the head of it yet. If he's not, he probably will be. Um, so uh, let's see, there's a, I can't remember his name. There was a guy named um, Bill in, in um, I think he was based in like Maine or New, uh, upstate New York. And he was sort of the head of it. And there, there's a lot of like keeping that involves in that. For example, there's lots of writings, there's protection of rights, um, like literary rights and things like that. And then there's also just, um, there's all these like different divisions of it, just like the, the Shriners or anything like that. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, it's very, very organized. I mean, it's an organized religion. I'm sure it, it qualifies as like a nonprofit and stuff. So, and it's worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. It's worldwide. And my, my knowledge of it is, you know, primarily as an outsider mm -hmm. and, um, you know, a lot of like interesting anecdotes that I found from it and people that I know that are very involved in it, that I, you know, I respect them very much. And I think that they have a lot of, um, a lot of understanding of some of the higher esoteric topics um, that they've gotten through years and years of study. So the people who are really kind of running it are the ones that have um, really dedicated their lives to like, you know, the esoteric study. For example, the, the Kabbalah, which I still is still like beyond my grasp. That's something that, you know, Lon Duquette, for example, has a really, really great understanding of it. my mom has a pretty solid understanding of it and she's tried to explain it to me a few times and I just it's complex it's I, I find it quite complex it's maybe not as complex as um 
I think it is, but I, it's, it's, I find it very, I mean, the base concepts are kind of like, okay, sure. But to actually really understand like what it takes to follow that, that path, um, to reach this stage of enlightenment right. is, um, yeah, that's a long path. Yeah. It probably takes a lot of determination to do that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of determination focus and you can't have like a bunch of other projects going on at the same time. Oh, wow. Okay. So you can't be a multitasker. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can. I can. <laughs> yeah, my, my interest to Alistair primarily is uh, when I heard that he contacted this being called Lamb and then mm. he drew the being and it looks like an alien gray. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because um, I've seen other sketches. So when I was working on like my book about like, um, it's called fairies, pukas, and changelings. Yeah, I, I have it written down. We, we're gonna yeah. Get it today. <laughs> oh yeah. I was just going to say, but oh, when I was ahead. researching that, um, there's, uh, I found a couple of different pictures in there of various things and, um, of, of this in this one book. So I was reading this book called British goblins and it's by this Welsh man, uh, or actually he was, he was, I think he was American, but he was like the, um, Welsh consul. He worked at the Welsh consulate. And he lived in Wales most of his adult life. And while he was there, he really, really loved like all the like Welsh folklore. And so he wrote this book called British Goblins. And I think he wrote it in like 1850 or something like that. And um, so this would have been prior to even um, Crowley tapping into that gray. And in it, there's um, a drawing that he included that someone he interviewed in the Welsh countryside sketched for him. And all it says under it is puka, which a puka is usually like a shapeshifter or kind of a like a, a spirit that's kind of a trickster spirit. And a lot of times it'll appear as like a horse or a rabbit and then it transforms. But mm. also that term puka can be used just in general to be like kind of like a fairy or a ghost. And I've, I've seen that a lot in Irish and Welsh literature, just referring to pukas as like something of that fairy realm. Anyway, this drawing looks like a gray. Really? It's like totally got this like weird head and the big eyes. Yeah. And I'm just like, that's interesting that yeah. this is, and it just says puka underneath and it's like sitting on a rock and it's this got this weird little skinny body. And it's like, totally looks like something out of, you know, that someone would right. sketch from a abduction. And right. interestingly, you get abducted into the fairy kingdom. You lose track of time. Sometimes you show up with no clothes on. You know, all kinds yeah. of stuff can happen. So there, there's, when it... there's connections there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's 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 flip the script a little bit. Let's go down memory lane, okay? So I, I remember the first time that I heard you. You were on a Coast to Coast show okay. in December two thousand eight, okay. and and I believe it was one of the shows where you know, people like myself, regular people, call in, you know, to talk about their experiences. But you had opened that show. And another reason why I remember that show is because, as you know, Coast to Coast plays great music as they go into transition yeah. commercials. Yeah. I remember them playing a Peter Gabriel song, but I don't think it was uh, Shock the Monkey or Sledgehammer. I, I know it was another one. And then they played Sweet Caroline from Neil Diamond. And I loved Neil Diamond. <laughs> yeah. but, um, that show, uh, I remember you talking about uh, the tablets of Tataria. Can you get into that? Oh, let's see. Tartaria we, um, in Transylvania. 
Oh, um, okay. So yes, we can get into that actually. Cause I have the book right here. It was probably, <laughs> no, it was probably right after, um, if it was 2008, it was probably right, right after Banshees, Werewolves and Vampires came out. And that was probably oh, why yes. I was on coast to yeah. coast. And I totally have, um, because there were these tablets that are, um, so what do you know here. generally of Tartaria? Because I know that Tartaria in of itself uh, has a, a, a story behind it, the, the, the area itself. Do you mean the, um, the tablets that have like old writing on them that were... Yeah, it, it supposedly predates Sumerian text. Yeah, let me see. Um, let me just find this here because I know I have like a whole section on it. And I know like the region of Tartaria was... Uh, very Atlantis-like. It, it was supposed to be this right where these uh, beings lived that 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 were extremely smart, technologically advanced. But why do I feel like that's not the name that was on the tablets? I, I, they might have been called something else, but yeah, I know that they're, they're known. I'm just going to keep looking really quick because no, no, I funny. know I have stuff in here about it, and I just want to make sure I get the name right. Right, and it was. 2008 so yeah i know i'm sorry <laughs> go in the way way back machine <laughs> yeah but i do know what you're talking about and the the writing predates um it does predate sumerian which is supposed to be one of the earliest if not the earliest written language although their jury's out on that because there's other writings around the world that are not understood to be writings, but that were, are considered written languages, but those well, Sumerian I, tablets. You know, our history is all messed up. Whatever, whatever we were taught in school. It, it, so it damn biased and yeah. backwards. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah, every, every, every corner you turn, you, you just, it's great that we are um, collectively realizing that I think, you know, because that's just the beginning. You have, to, you have to collectively realize it. And that means that everyone from the believers to the non-believers have to start like acknowledging and recognizing, you know, that there's a system that absolutely needs to be dismantled. Correctly. You yes. know, just like um, we punk rockers all knew back in the, <laughs> <laughs> back in the eighties. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry because I know no, they're in apologize. here. So, I, know, yeah. I, know you're, I know you're getting serious because you put your glasses on. So I know, I know. Well, I have to, I have to be able to, to read too. Well, there's definitely so, it, but I feel like it has something to do with um, vampires though. Well, Why because, do it's I feel like... because it's in Transylvania. It's yeah, in because Romania. it was in Transylvania. Yeah. Right, right, right. But there was another connection there. And I'm trying to remember what it was. Because I know that there's been other things since then where they've found like, for example, like a grave that has been uncovered and then the body has been like either there's a stake through the heart or like a brick in the mouth and they've like covered it. every once in a while you'll see that in the news like witch's grave or vampire's grave on earth and the debate is does it show does it prove the existence of vampires or does it prove the belief in vampires Correct. you know what i mean like does it prove that that person was a vampire and they had a brick in their mouth so they would never come back up again or is it really just the you know the idea that right. people believed that superstition 
Well, have you seen that video? I think it came out maybe a year ago of that person who was supposedly a vampire. I found it. Found it. <laughs> okay, good. Let's go ahead. We'll... <laughs> I knew it was in here. Yeah, Page two sixteen <laughs> for anyone who wants to read along. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So well, th this was right. So it was the um, they were actually found in nineteen sixty one initially. Um, and it, it's archaeologists digging in a prehistoric mound in the Transylvanian <clears throat> village of Tartaria made a startling discovery, several small clay tablets with bizarre inscriptions on them. Uh, some believe the inscriptions to be sigils or magical signs, and others believe that they were important documents left behind for the singular purpose of being found, like a time, like you might leave a time capsule. Yes. Using carbon dating, the object's origin was placed at around 4,000 BCE. The writing was believed to be of Mesopotamian origin, specifically Sumerian, the first written language, but no one was actually, can say that, they were unable to say that conclusively at the time. But here's the part that was so cool, because okay, so the three tablets were found in the lowest layer of the dig. They were in a sacrificial pit, within a burial mound and the pit also contains scattered human bones. The bones bore symbols quite similar to the inscriptions on the tablets. The symbols were both from Sumer and from the highly advanced Minoan civilization of Crete. But in the, if the carbon dating is accurate, the tablets were made by a primitive stone age agricultural type tribe known as the Vinca. The Vinca predated Sumerian writing by one millennium and the Minoan writing by 2000 years. Most scholars believe that the inscriptions were magical ciphers, spells and secret codes of this ancient farming tribe. The hash marks, swirls, X's and shapes on the three tablets cast a spell over mystery lovers too. And actually kind of interesting, interestingly, the last time I went to Ireland, there are these like, they're called like, it's spelled O-G-H-A-M, but it's pronounced O-M. Right. And there, it's it's this like written language that was like it, if you don't know it, it honestly it just looks like 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 lines and marks. Right. Um, but that's a super early language, and and similarly, they they will find those um, carvings on bone or um, other things in in excavated sites. So it's pretty interesting. I think it's kind of amazing that it comes from a place that already is so steeped in mystery and mystique in Transylvania. But as far as like, like, I don't know that much about this civilization that created them. Um, I mean, there's definitely the idea of that, like the, um, did you mention it? Atlantis or like the yeah. Atlantean yeah. yeah so there's definitely some theories about this like Atlantean kind of and the idea I think we think of Atlantis as this like completely underwater kind of thing like our minds are kind of conditioned to think that because you know Marvel comics or whatever but I think as a vast civilization it was actually um you know on dry land as well Correct. and I think that it's you you'll find again and again and it's as we have climate change and and you know water levels are dropping these discoveries kind of keep unearthing themselves literally right like things that were for for quite a long time at the bottom of the sea are kind of unearthing themselves and so i always think what what are those like 
early myths and ideas about it. And even if you can't attribute every single thing, I remember only a few years ago, there was an exhibit that I saw at a museum and it was basically this town that had been, it was like part e Egyptian, part um, Greek. And it was, it was actually thought to be a myth. The name of this, I, can't, I forgot the name of it, but the name of this town was completely thought to be a myth. They thought it was like this old story about like some kind of trading post, but no one thought the actual town existed. And then some underwater archaeologists found this tablet and this tablet like legit told the whole story of how the town was found. It was like a tablet that had been in the town right. square and they kept looking and they found massive pillars and they found this evolution of art and artwork that actually married both the ancient Greeks and the Egyptian civilizations right. from sculptures to money. They found money from both cultures. And so it actually was totally true. Legit. The whole yes. thing was, it was like totally true, but it had been dismissed as, as some kind of myth. So I'm, yeah, I mean, there's gotta be, there's gotta be something that we don't know. And then of course, there's the whole idea that, um, I mean, there's many people that believe that even the Egyptians were in like what the Egyptians believed were the gods and goddesses that they were talking to and the divine beings that they were talking to. Some people think that that was, you know, off planet or alien right. life forms, but that kind of brings us back to the thing we were talking about earlier with like the sketch of the grays. Right. That I wonder all the time, are we just calling things different names? I know. Have, yeah, I was going to bring right? that up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it sure feels like it. Like the more you, the more you go down that road, the more you can really see like what you called a puka, you know, and what you called a shapeshifter, you might call an alien or not, not to say that there's exact parallels with everything, but I guess the point being that people have been having these experiences and using different words to describe them since, you know, since time began. Right. So, right. well, the thing is our vocabulary is so advanced now, even though if you think about it, we're kind of going backwards. Yeah. Right. With how we communicate yeah. now with all this shorthand and these new words that we're creating. But I'm just saying like, we're more advanced uh, when it comes to being able to communicate now and we have more words to explain things. Whereas let's say Alexander the Great, who saw UFO, described it as a shield because that's the only thing in his vocabulary. Right. That's the thing it looked the most like, right? Because right? he didn't have an identified flying object in his Correct. vocabulary. Right, right, exactly. And when you have all these stories, especially the stories like, um, like I love a lot of the kind of early turn of the, turn of the 20th century folklore that's been gathered from, you know, William Butler Yeats traveling around Ireland and um, taking these stories that people told him as he traveled. And these are the stories that people have been telling for centuries about the fairy tree or the, you know, the, the well that, you know, will has healing properties. I mean, you have that around the world where there are these stories that are, that go back, you know, generations and generations, if not, you know, if not longer and right. then, you know, some scientist comes along and analyzes the water. And I was like, actually, there's healing minerals in this water. And, right, right. you know, like <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, 
well, you could have just listened to the original, you know, just listen to the natives for God's yeah. sake. <laughs> listen, they know what they're doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do, do you know, um, have you heard of the Rendlesham Forest incident? In, no, in the, I don't the, think so. UFO? It's, it's pretty well known in ufology, but the reason why I bring it up is because it's connected to Atlantis. Oh, because you were talking about how like everybody thinks Atlantis is underwater, like some 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 sort of underwater like civilization, but it's actually on land. Well, I'm not gonna go into too much detail, but if you have a chance to look it up, like I would look it up, but it's called the Rendlesham Forest incident, and it has okay. to do with the Air Force. We had a base in uh in the UK and they were seeing UFOs there. Um so one night the 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 I don't know what you would call him, I guess the flight chief or whatever. He's told that these UFOs had come back. So he went out with a group because he wasn't believing that it was it was real. He went out with a group to go see these UFOs and he had like experiences there. One of the airmen happened to go down this field and uh, the field opened up and there was this triangular craft just sitting there. For whatever reason, he went up and he touched it and it sent like shockwaves through his body he had like some sort of out of body experience but at the same time it implanted something in his head which was binary code so oh. weeks later or something like that he wound up writing down all these numbers and it wound up being coordinates to this place called high brazil have you ever heard of that Mm-mm. high brazil is like off the coast of europe and supposedly that's where atlantis was oh whoa yeah Right. Okay. I'm going to have to read more right. about that. I mean, that's just, it's just so amazing. But everything connects, you know, it's just, it, yeah. but yeah. I, let me ask you a question. Do you feel that there's information that's been withheld? Oh yeah. Us that Absolutely. would help us. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it was withheld with like evil intent initially, um, I think it was withheld for a like popu- population control, but more in like a panic control. I mean, come on, information was withheld during the pandemic. Like, correct. Information was withheld like immediately, right? Like how bad it was and whether or not we should be wearing masks and all this kind of stuff was just like everything changed over like a couple of months. And um, as we mentioned, we already know that the system that we're working with is highly flawed and takes into a very narrow, narrow viewpoint. And Correct. everyone who's not part of that viewpoint, and I think we all know what viewpoint that is, <laughs> everyone who's not part of that, right? A person of color, a woman, um, someone who's below the poverty line, uh, someone who you know has abilities outside of the, the norm, anyone who's not part of that, um, is excluded from that that monologue, right? So, okay, we already know that. Uh, so, why would why would we think? You know, I mean, why would we think that 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 there hasn't been information withheld? Of course, right. there has been. Now that can all change, and and it perhaps is changing. And I think that there's like a different mentality about it because. I know that like, it's almost like there's a cold war mentality about it. Right. So that idea that, I mean, you grew up in the, 
we grew up during the Cold War, right? Yes. It was like the big scare was the was um, the uh, you know the Russians pushing the button. That was yeah. like that was the big scare, you know. It was like that's what that's what we were taught to be afraid of. And um, I think there's a little bit of a Cold War mentality of like just like well, you know, they pe people will panic. They don't know how to handle that. But I just think, especially with the information that we have, I mean, just the ability that like here you and I are time traveling, right? Like we're time traveling, we're talking on this like little magical box and we're right. able to see each other and have a conversation as if we're in the same room, even though we're in different time right. zones. And I mean, right? So like that, that kind of thing has, for all of the negatives that may come along with it, it's broadened the worldview and, and connectedness across time and space, right? So now we understand that, you know, we can actually communicate with people in other countries very easily and we can, um, we can share information a lot faster and a lot easier. And so I think that there's also, I'd like to think there's more, a little bit more forgiveness of like, okay, just, we get it, right? admit that you're wrong and let's move on. Let's move on and figure out how to, how to fix it. So just admit that you're wrong, release the documents. I mean, we're talking about a country that had John Lennon on their watch list, right? Like definitely, definitely have, there's, there's info that has not been fully disclosed yet. It could have been because he saw a UFO, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, he, he, yeah, all he had to do was put in a song lyric and he was yeah, there you on go. the list. Yeah. So, so are you ready for the next part? Because you might need to put your glasses back on and get that oh, book. Oh, right? sure. You know, yeah, yeah. From 2008. But this is like an oddity. And this is something that you brought up oh. that I never even knew. This had to do with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Um, and the fact that Ulysses S. Grant wound up not going to that same show that he went to. Yeah, that John's yeah. John Wilkes Booth had Ulysses S. Grant as uh, on his list of, you know, assassinations, apparently. Yeah. So yeah. what, what actually, I don't need my glasses for that one, okay, because okay. that's one of my favorite all time stories. So yeah. the story goes that it was actually um, Ulysses S. Grant, um, his wife had a, basically a nightmare, a very, very realistic dream in which Grant was shot and killed. And he was supposed to go to the theater with Abraham Lincoln and she, they were both supposed to go. And she begged him, she begged him, like she was hysterical. This is, you know, she insisted that they leave town, which was completely unplanned, but they did. So the night before the assassination, the two of them left town and declined the invitation to the theater. And of course that was the night that Lincoln was shot and Ulysses S. Grant was on the, I think he had like four or five different people on that list that he wanted to shoot. And um, Grant would have been sitting, if not right next to him, right in that same, I think they were supposed to be in the same box. So saved by um, psychic intuition, yeah. which when I first read that story, I thought, wow, that's a really radical thing. But then when you start looking at the world and, and, and the lens and, and where like psychic arts fell in society during that time, um, I mean, you even had like Mary Todd Lincoln would had conducted seances in the yes. White House. That was like the peak of spiritualism. And so, um, you know, the Fox sisters, people were traveling around 
making contact with spirits, having these regular um, seances and parlors. And so it was really a part of popular culture then. And so when you look at it like that, it's not that outrageous that this dream really kind of changed the course of, of their history because, I mean, one, I'm sure she was incredibly insistent. And, but there was also an inherent belief that her premonition, that her dream could have been a premonition. And I wonder if that had been 50 or 100 years prior, if that same, if the same thing would have happened. But I think because of spiritualism and because of this strong belief in the psychic arts at the time in popular culture, including in the upper echelons of society, um, it, that really played that really played a role in in that happening right yeah right. she might not have said anything years prior oh i'm sure she would have said anything i mean you know she's somebody's wife dreaming right. i mean I, I would you know go move heaven and earth if i was in that situation right, right, right. but he might not have believed her Right. That, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. That's yeah. probably the more, yeah, that's, or, or would have dismissed it as like a, yeah, a hysterical woman that needed to go to the, <laughs> you know, needed to take some fresh air in the countryside to feel better. <laughs> Similar so if, times. If, so if you think about it, because I don't think that there was automatic weapons then. So if Grant shows, yeah. so, so if Grant shows up, there's a possibility that Wilkes Booth shoots Grant, which causes a commotion. Lincoln gets out safe and he never gets assassinated. It, totally. That's entirely possible. I actually just read something. Something just came up and I didn't, I didn't read it. I saved it <laughs> right. earlier today. And it's about the revolver. It, it's, it was something about the revolver that um, was used to shoot Lincoln. And I'm not sure what it was, but it was like, some kind of new information just came out about it. But yeah, it was a, it was a, just a, you know, I mean, the revolver just, you just cock it. So he right. could have done it, but it, yeah, absolutely. If he had shot anyone else first, there would have been this like commotion. But if he was still shooting I me, mean, also he could have been like taken down right then, you know, I, who knows? Like so right, many right. different so many different things. Someone might have shielded him, like, and then, and then, what would? Yeah, that's that's a great premise for like a history-based, like fiction, like thriller. If you're, if you wanna, if you wanna write a really good thriller, you could, you could imagine what would have happened if Lincoln had, you know, carried his his presidency to full term. Right. Like what, like, what would the, how would that have altered the course of history? Right. That that's kind of awesome to think about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, free idea out there for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not enough of a history scholar to be able to pull that it. one off. So far you've created two ideas on this show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we're going to get into your books. Okay. Um, the first one came out in 2020 and it's called among the mermaids. Okay. So I have two daughters and yeah. growing up, I mean, you know, watching them grow up, they little mermaid. You had this one show from the UK that had these girls that were mermaids. I grew up watching splash with Tom Hanks and yeah, Daryl yeah. Hannah. So they're always portrayed as these beautiful women that are half, you know, human, half fish. But is that the true portrayal of a mermaid? Like, what can you tell us about mermaids? Yeah. Well, in the book, I mean, in the book, please. Yeah. Yes. So that book, um, I love, I love that book and it's actually, <laughs> um, 
it's a really interesting topic because even people who like believe in UFOs and like Bigfoot and stuff, like they don't like to admit that they believe in mermaids. Yeah, mermaid is a cryptid. Yeah, a mermaid is, and I don't even know if it's fully accepted as like this other being, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, you'll, you'll roll with dog man, but you won't accept that there might be a mermaid in the water. Like <laughs> my money's on the mermaids. Um, but yeah, one of the, one of the reasons that I, I wanted to write that book, um, is that I grew up with those same mermaids. Um, but I also read the little mermaid when I was a kid. Um, and it's pretty brutal. The original story, um, it's, it's, it's pretty violent and, and she goes through quite a transformation um, to become human. Uh, so it really kind of touches on like a bunch of other, other themes in there of like sacrifice. And unfortunately it's sort of like got a little bit of a Christianized, um, ending. Quick question. I apologize, but you said the book. So was the book written by Disney or did Disney? Um, the original little mermaid is a short story by Hans Christian Andersen. Okay. And it's in his collection of fairy tales. I never knew that. Yeah, he's he's right around the same time as like the Grimm brothers. Right. So as you, I'm sure you know that like the Grimm's fairy tales, like those original fairy tales are like quite quite brutal. Yeah, but I didn't know he had. Yeah, he wrote The Little Mermaid. And I, I just remember being a kid and actually like loving to swim and totally just being like all into mermaids and then reading that and reading about how she traded like the ability to swim um like just to even walk on land like the way her like legs her tail like split apart into these feet but her feet were like really sensitive and so everywhere she walked it was like glass and daggers were just stabbing at her feet and her feet were like bloody from walking I know it was like really it's really brutal (laughs) (laughs) So I laugh. Um, so, but I, I've always known. And then also when you get into, especially the Irish fairy kind of um, the like classification of the fairies, the marrow fall into the um, realm of the fairies. And they're, they're described by a few different writers um, especially William Butler Yeats has a pretty, pretty detailed description of them being quite ferocious. And so um, the marrow being male and female, but primarily female, often um, like a little bit more shape shiftery. So they might appear, but like the appearance as a beautiful woman is a bit more of like a mirage, which makes sense, right? Because if you think about like sailors out at sea for all this time and they're deprived of like fresh water and they're just drinking the the grog or the rum or whatever they've got to like sustain them and they're you know they're dehydrated they're 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 very nutrient deprived it's been a long time since they've been on land and they look out and they see like oh it's you know manatee suddenly start looking like look start looking really good right (laughs) but also just the idea of that mirage and how 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 tricky the sea can be and how quickly you can get ensnared in sort of the currents and the um, the rhythm of the ocean and how quickly that can kind of pull you under. Um, so mermaids sort of really represent that like dangerous and treacherous part of water, especially the idea that they can pull you under and you're, you're kind of unsuspecting in a way. We definitely have um, 
the depiction of mermaids as beautiful women who are like, you know, just sort of lolling about and like, you know, playing, playing with their lobster friends or whatever. But really, and, and I think that there's an element of that that's absolutely like, you know, accurate to a certain extent. In some cultures and in like um, island cultures, you had mermaids worshipped as symbols of fertility and symbols of um, protection. And you see that also in Australia, there's quite a few um, indigenous Australian groups that are very tied in with harvesting from the sea and um, with mermaids and leave offering offerings to mermaids. So even in the book, there was a woman that um, sent this story from her group in, in, um, in Australia about where they believe they came from, that mer their mermaids are actually part of their whole history right and um have helped their them survive all of these years so there, there's a lot of tie-in between mermaids being helpful and mermaids being harmful you know there's 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 both sides and i think that there's a lot of i mean they they are very dualistic in that way um I also firmly believe that mermaids are psychopomps and a psychopomp is basically like a creature that um, a creature or a god or an entity that can take you from one world to the next. Our most common, commonly thought of psychopomp is an angel. We think of angels as transitioning us into this next world. Well, mermaids absolutely do that. They do that to um, lost souls. So if there's a shipwreck, whether it was caused by the mermaids or not, they're still the keeper of those lost souls and they'll still transition them into the next life. And there's a lot of stories about, about that. Um, but there's definitely a lot of the mirage and the trickery um, and you know a few stories of just like com being completely foolhardy and stumbling upon a mermaid drunk on a beach and almost drowning. So, uh, but there's definitely a very, very dark side and some pretty scary, you know, very snaggle toothed, um, uh, ugly descriptions of mermaids. Right. But they were able to project themselves as being more beautiful. I would, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, the ugly ones are hiding behind the, <laughs> the beautiful one stuck on the rock. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I used to do that when I was a kid hitchhiking with my with my friends. The guys would be like, "Go out on the you you hitchhike on the side oh. of the road. We'll hide we'll hide back here because right. they won't pick a they won't pick up like four teenage boys, but they'll right. pick up a teen." I'm like, "Oh, that's kind did of it work? Creepy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> did. Yep, yep, creepy." So, what's the connection with Blackbeard? Because I know Blackbeard didn't like mermaids or was afraid yeah. of them. Yeah, he was actually quite. I mean, he he's known as this incredibly fierce pirate but he was very afraid of mermaids. He was afraid of losing his crew to mermaids. He was afraid of mermaid infested waters and he had places marked on his maps not to go. But I had totally have a theory about that. And um, I think now I firmly believe he believed that they were mermaids. And I firmly believed that men would go overboard thinking they were mermaids. But my theory is that like he would hide out along um, you know, along the coast of like the Carolinas and then down and through Florida and the Keys and stuff. And like, um, there's manatees in that area. Yes. And so manatees like it where it's really warm. They, so they don't like deep water. They like shallow water. Well, you don't want your ship to go where there's shallow water and rocks, right? You get stuck. Yeah. You're, you're going to get stuck and then they're going to capture you, take all your treasure and your and the jig is up. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I think that there is a little practicality there of like, don't go here. 
who marked that originally, whether it was the belief in mermaids or, I mean, mermaid um, manatee tales do have that like split of looking like mermaids and actually from a deck and you're looking down into relatively clear, but still slightly murky waters. And you see these things going by that you have no equivalent to where in the country that you grew up in, right? So you're just like, well, that looks like the shape of a, of a fish, but it was bigger than a fish and it kind of, you know, was more bodacious. So, right. yeah. So I think that there's like, definitely, um, there's just like a lot of elements to that, but yeah, he was afraid that he would lose his crewmen to mermaids. Mm -hmm. So legitimate fear for a pirate, I think. Right. Right. Isn't that even <laughs> happened in Pirates of the Caribbean? The, the, the yeah. mermaids. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's, it's all based on true myths. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, is there such thing as a male mermaid or a merman or what? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Stories of that? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the marrow themselves are um, both genders. So in like the Irish and the Celtic mythology, they're, they're both genders and the, the, they're both described in as, as fairly hideous, but the males are described almost more um, like their faces are almost more fish-like. They have fewer like human-like attributes. Right. Um, but there's several stories that I've read where the there's, you know, kind of that idea in the in the mermaid where there's like the king and then all of his darts. That that actually you see that frequently where there's like one male and then there are several female mermaids that are part of that like group or whatever, whatever you call it, gaggle. <laughs> um, murder of mermaids yeah <laughs> so um but definitely they're they're male mermaids they're not um like i said they're not usually described as quite as human like um as the female mermaids and that could just be you know them just unpacking like a whole history of like anti-feminist culture in the right. world right so yeah, yeah. there could be that um I've also heard the argument that, you know, most women aren't going to go in to try and, you know, they're not going to be enticed by a, by a male mermaid, the way a, a male would be enticed by a female mermaid. Correct. Um, but I, um, I do see a lot of, of the descriptions being just, you know, sort of abdomen, but interestingly, I had this one person. So I was saying earlier, like, even the ufologists are like, they scoff at mermaids. I had this one woman actually send me, she sent me her story of her mermaid encounter. It's in the book. No way. And um, she sent me a picture, which at the time there was no way to include the picture in the book, but I'll never forget the drawing she sent me because it was very, so basically the, the, just of the story is that she was on vacation somewhere in the Caribbean, I think with her mom and they were sleeping in like one of those like, um, little houses that are kind of over the water, you know, like you walk a little deck out. Like and a cabana? She, yeah. Like a cabana kind of thing. And she woke up in the night and, um, she saw this being in her room and it was glowing. It had red hair, it had glowing eyes. It kind of scared her and it was like half man, but with like a little bit more of like a almost like alien like face by her drawing. And then the bottom half was fish and she woke up, she saw it 
And then she kind of like looked away or, you know, how those things go, you look away and then you look back and it's gone. And she went back to sleep. And when she got up in the morning, there was a pool of water in her room where this thing had been. And she sent me a drawing of it. And the drawing was like, it almost looked, it actually totally looked like something from the fairy kingdom. Like it had this very like ethereal element to it that, um, you know, it wasn't like she, she hadn't done this like really detailed, you know, super advanced drawing, but she drew it to best of her ability, what this thing looked right. like. And it reminded me so much of when people are like, okay, sketch what you saw, like what abducted you. And it was totally like that. And then there's another part to the story that, um, where her mom saw something or felt something around the same time, but didn't want to wake her up. And they didn't say anything. And like the next afternoon, they were kind of like, so, <laughs> and I guess they kind of shared the story and something, something they had both kind of had a similar right. experience. But, um, since that time, so just from like being on shows like coast to coast and stuff, I have had quite a few people contact me with things that they would put, say are mermaid stories. Um, what's the craziest being, or what's like realistic? Um, the, most realistic. the most realistic is just being lost. Um, like when it's like really foggy being lost and then um, hearing like these songs or these sounds that helped people figure out where, um how far they were from the coast or like guiding them yeah kind of guiding them or warning them you know depending on how you look at it um more things like uh you know we saw we're not sure what we saw but it definitely wasn't human and it definitely wasn't you know it's usually the person who spent you know years of their life if not all of their life at sea and they've seen a lot of things and they've seen a lot of creatures and this uh, didn't fit that description. It swam by really fast or haven't had too many people tell me about like really negative experiences. Um, but you know, there's this like group of women. Um, I think, I think it's an Island in, off the coast of South Korea, the Haneo, and they can hold their, like, it's like this long tradition of, um, women passing down the ability to like, to like basically, you know, like skin dive underwater, um, without weight belts and they harvest like abalone and different, um, seafood, but they have trained themselves to be able to like hold their breath for like the most advanced ones can hold their breath underwater with nothing, no masks or anything for like 10 minutes. Wow. That's incredible. So it's like this training of like i mean and if you think about it like sure people who you know are really advanced musicians you know they have really you know singers have breath control right. saxophonists lung have capacity. breath control lung capacity um swimmers obviously have amazing breath control some people can hold their breath underwater and you can train your body to do those things and it just kind of makes you go if you could train your body to to do that does that mean that we our bodies are capable of that and did we evolve from that capability and we just right. or devolved right, right. No, we came on land <laughs> Some and of we us anyway. abilities yeah 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 so and that's the other thing too with that the whole idea of atlantis is i always think about those stories that you are kind of taught as a kid are like really fantastical but really, you know, they're, they're origin stories. And even, you know, you think of like Native American stories and um, 
they're sort of glamorized or considered, um, you know, myths as in the idea that they're lies, but then you find that the truth is actually really there. And actually it's a greater truth than anything we were taught in school. And I just think the idea that a myth isn't true is a, is a really negative thing that we're taught as kids that like myths are made up and there's no, there it's, and, and it's not necessarily one or the other, but I feel like there's just so much dis, dismissing of something that might seem fantastical that um, in reality is pointing us directly where we need to go. I agree. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. All right, so let's go. Let's get into the. So theory. we're going to take over the education system now. <laughs> I mean, they have to change something. I mean, I worked. I, I'm working a, like a regular office job now, but for four years, I worked in an elementary school okay. out here in Central Florida. I was what they call a paraprofessional, so I worked mm -hmm. with with kids that that had students that had disabilities, but I primarily worked with kids on the autism spectrum. Um. Two, both, I have three kids, two of them are on the spectrum. So I have experience with that. So it was natural for me to do that. Yeah. But the things that they're being taught is, oh my God. And it's, the teachers don't even want to teach the things that they're told. To. I know that's the thing that's the most heartbreaking, right? Yeah. It's like the teachers, but they're also, they know that if they don't, these kids won't be able to continue on in the system the way that they're right. Because right. So they're trying to set them up for success, but they know that there's like, it's this very convoluted path. Yeah. Sucks. Yeah, it does. Sucks. But, um, all right. So fairies, pukas, and changelings, this came out in 2017. And we started talking about the pukas and the similarities between the pukas and the mermaids, as you said, there's a shape shifting element. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me also of skinwalkers who also yep. shape, but let's get into that. Like, um, all right. I know it's a silly question, but there, there, there seem to be separated like fairies, pukas and changelings, but have they ever been seen together? Like, you know, having a drink together at a bar and sharing stories? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So here, here's the thing. So like fairy, the, I'll just like the way I look at the fairy kingdom is look at it. Like, um, the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom, right? It's like the, there's one big umbrella and then there's all of these things underneath it. So the title is actually a little bit misleading um, because a changeling and a puka are also fairies. But I could, they wouldn't let me just call it changelings, pukas, and other things. Well, you got to put fairy in the title. Okay, fine. So, um, so, so within that fairy kingdom, you, I, I always liked like, um, William Butler Yeats had this great, like, kind of like classification of fairies and he had, and so I kind of like roughly follow that in that there are fairies that are woodland dwelling, fairies that are domestic, fairies that live in the water, fairies that live in the ocean, um, fairies that live deep in the earth. Um, but they're all of these kind of like magical creatures that have the ability to cloak themselves and hide themselves from humans as needed. And sometimes we get to see them. Um, sometimes we stumble upon them because we stepped into something we didn't know. Um, frequently with pukas, you'll have people drinking 
and that's the, the that's almost always the like the, the drunk guy on the way home from the pub right. sees a puka. The oh yeah, drinking? you saw a puka. Mm -hmm. right. Are the pukas drinking? Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so you have all you have this kind of like big umbrella of, of fairies, and and they're not necessarily these little sweet things that are flitting around, you know, pollinating your flowers. Those are bees, right? Those are like actually bees and butterflies. Fairies um, can do a lot of very dark things and they do live in that sort of like other world. And, and uh, mu much of the time in order to access that world, you do have to go underground at least initially. So you'll find parallels actually in a lot of the um, Celtic mythology of like going into a cave and going into a trance and going into kind of the underbelly um, as with like Greek mythology, um, other indigenous stories about kind of going like through this transformation, um, going into like a dark or sensory deprived place in order or a cave in order to come out on, into this other realm. And often that realm is accessed because you're like trying to get something. You're either trying to save something, you're trying to restore something, you're trying to save someone. Um, but every once in a while, you do have people who sort of unwittingly stumble upon it because they stayed out too late. Um, and there's some pretty like creepy stuff. I read one recently about this guy who was like walking he was supposed to come home and his, you know, his father told him to come home and make sure he wasn't out past midnight and he didn't listen. And he was out, he was coming home late, not from the pub, but he was coming home late. And um, before he got past this one abandoned house, the fairies all came out and basically made him um, carry a corpse that had become animated for miles until it could find a resting ground. It was a very bizarre story. That but it was basically all of these little people who were like forcing him to do something that had a power over him. So you see that a lot in the fairy kingdom that if you make a little mistake, you slip up and then you end up into this in this other world and anything could happen. Your life really could be in jeopardy. That's crazy. <laughs> 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 so don't fall asleep on a fairy yeah. mound rule number no. one like <laughs> no, no what does a fairy mound look like i mean anything could be a fairy mound i take it right? well yeah but it often it's like a circle so like a circle of trees um i was always taught a circle of mushrooms is a fairy mound so you know don't step inside that fairy circle it can be a circle of flowers um that those are all kind of ways but there's other ways to access the fairy world too i mean there's like you know how people put those like little doors and trees and stuff. Yeah, they there's, do them in the neighborhood. Yeah, and it's super. I, I love it, but there's actually one really close to my house. It's this tree, and it it there. Nobody put this door in. There is a damn door in this tree, and I am just like every time I walk by it, I kind of walk by it. Like, okay, I'm not gonna knock on that. I'm tempted, but I'm mm -hmm. not gonna knock on it. But it's actually like the way the tree formed. It formed in this perfect little like as if someone put a door, not as small as those fairy doors. It's probably about like, I'd say three feet high, two feet wide. And it even has a little spot that could look like where you would push on it. And I thought, should I knock on it? But I'm, I'm actually smart enough to not knock on a random fairy door without like, you know, at least leaving a gift first. And it's not on my property. If it was on my property, who knows what I would have done by now, but it's just like this tree I walk by all the time. 
So I think there's a lot of like, you, you know, that part in the Nightmare Before Christmas where they go into like the circle of trees and there's all the yeah. doors with all the different holidays. Like that's this, you know, there's this like idea that trees are a place that you can kind of enter into this other realm, um, caves, certain like rock formations. And then, in, you know, there, um, in Ireland, there's a lot of like mounds that are considered fairy mounds that are part of like the underground of the of the fairy kingdom. And that's sort of like where you can see there, that's sort of like the roof or whatever. <laughs> yeah, almost like the hobbits. They have their yeah. mound. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he based that on a lot of um, British and Celtic mythology, right. for sure. Like all of those little like creatures and stuff, just like even in like Harry Potter, like a lot of the creatures that she talks about are actually in the folkloric record, you know, like the little like house elves and right. things like that. Not necessarily being like um, kept as slaves, but there's, there are like brownies, which are like helpful domestic guys that hang out and they're little people and they will kind of protect your animals and your kids and stuff. So, I mean, and all, lots of cultures have that and actually make, make a peace with and invite them in from, you know, from Finland to, um, you know, the tip of South America, there's, there's the idea that you can work with these entities in order to protect and, and um, prosper, right? Protect your family and prosper. So there's an element of witchcraft in there, isn't there? Yeah, everything's involved, it, it seems yeah. like. Yeah. Um, you should knock on that door and just run away at a distance and see what happens. <laughs> like, I would like try and get an unsuspecting <laughs> child to knock on it for me. I know, I totally want to knock on it, but I'm a little thinking like, I feel like I should at least leave a little gift first, you know? So like, hey, just in case I knock, but yeah, I know. But you're saying that- I knock three appeared? times. That door appeared? I mean, one night I was walking and there it was. And I mean, I was new to the neighborhood and I was walking by it, but it kind of startled me when I saw it. Oh, and here's the other crazy thing. The first time I saw it, there was an actual door next to it. Like there was a door in the tree. And then there was a door that someone had like an old door that someone had taken out of the house. And it was a beautiful old door with like a cool doorknob. And I have any way to you know, get at home. I'm not sure if I would have taken that door anyway. It felt very, I was, and it was at night, right? And I was like walking my dog at night and I was like, what's happening right now? Like, I felt like I had stepped into some kind of like episode of something, you know, it was like, uh, should I touch these things? I took a picture of it though, just so I knew that yeah. it was actually real. Um, but yeah, there was a door and a door. That's crazy. There's that, there's that, uh, though, that, I don't know if you call it that those stories of people that, uh, hike in the forest and they'll find a set of stairs that lead to a door. Yeah. Yeah. Those like creepy stairways. Yeah. 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 I would go up them. Really? I, I would. Yeah. I don't think I'd be able to, to stop myself. But do you won't knock on that, that door in your neighborhood, but you'll go up some stairs in a, in a forest. <laughs> Good, good point good point all right i'm gonna knock on that door tonight i'm doing it no no i don't want to i don't want to get <laughs> you have to be responsible <laughs> nobody get... knows what happened to varla ventura but there's this mysterious here's her mysterious last appearance <laughs> exactly all right so let's get into the book of the bizarre freaky facts and strange stories this came out in 2008 okay and you know, I'm from the 80s, so I grew up and was able to see all these different actors and actresses, but I wasn't aware that Catherine Hepburn 
was afraid of people with dirty hair or wouldn't approach. Oh yeah, that's like the whole phobia section. Yeah, yeah. She had like this. I've actually read that since in several other. Um, like I think I have a whole book just about her, and and apparently she was like obsessive about washing her <laughs> washing her hair. I mean, she had great hair, so um, yeah, I understand it. Maybe she grew up with like lice or something. I don't really know, but that's, yeah, that's crazy. Those sort, those two, the book of the bazaar and then beyond bazaar, which was like, yeah, because it's a two part series. Yeah, because right. like by the time I like by the time the first one was done, I had so much other stuff, and the publisher was like, let's just call it right here, <laughs> and um. And then I was like, well, I have all these other ideas for chapters. And, and so I kind of had had like a bunch of the stuff researched already for the second book. Um, but by then I was like a little bit more of an experienced writer. So I felt like I um, got a little more creative with it. But um, yeah, that I grew up reading all of those kind of like um, Ripley's Believe It or Not and, you know, those like Fate Magazine and yeah. all those things that were just full of strange facts and weird news and weird tales and I, I've kind of always just like you know it's just so interesting coast to coast puts out that newsletter where they'll like pull out the weird news stories yeah. and I feel like there's just there's always some kind of headline you'll see that'll just make you scratch your head like there's one story about these like zombie ants and they're actually like the, I think it's is it Texas A&M that's in Austin it's like a really big university and they were they were actually experimenting with this way to like kill um I think they were trying to like figure out how to kill fire ants or something and like so, a pest control thing yeah and so they did this like um bizarre kind of like <clears throat> I don't know they created this way for like if the ant ate this maggot, it would like basically turn their brain into like a zombie and then they would like infect the hive and the stuff. Hive. And it was okay. just like, but it was an actual story and it wasn't written like, hey, here's some weird news. It was like, hey, here's some revolutionary like scientific news. If you want to find the weirdest news stories, just subscribe to all the science newsletters mm. because that stuff, it's not, you know, it it's, like they're doing all of this research, but there they'll just be things like, um, you know, real life invisibility cloaks and, and, you know, stuff like that, where you're just like, whoa, this is, people are actually doing this. And um, does no one think this is a bad idea? <laughs> well, they got to try, you know, I guess. Right, right, right. <laughs> but there is such thing as like a zombie ant, but it's different. It's where like this parasite, I don't know if you've seen that where it infects. Yeah. Yeah, um, the parasite infects them and then they turn and then they eat each other, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Definitely. <laughs> so one one of the chapters really caught my eye in that in that book. Um, and it's only because as you live in California and there's Hollywood out there. Um, yeah. I come from New York and I remember a friend, uh, an acquaintance of mine telling me, um, you know, New York is haunted. And I asked him to explain to me, like, what do you mean by that? And he's like, because of the history, there's so much that has gone on. Mm -hmm. There's like this depressing, heavy energy in New York that it's like haunted. And I would imagine that Hollywood is the same way because of a lot of different things. Um, 
particularly Hollywood, what a Hollywood is, you know, the, mm-hmm. what Hollywood really represents. And then, you know, I, I don't really like talking too much about it, but the pedophilia that goes on in, mm-hmm. in Hollywood and all this other stuff. So um, what what can you yeah, talk there's, to me there's about? a lot of darkness there for a sure. A lot of darkness, exactly. A lot yeah, of darkness. Yeah, so, a lot of darkness that is made to look as if it's shiny and light and you should be striving toward it. So there's a lot right. of trickery there, right? That glamour, that like, Everybody wants this, right. but at what cost? Right, because uh, you, you only hear the success stories. You don't hear the other stories of some, you know, male or female going to from Memphis to, you know, you know, Hollywood to become a star. And then bad things wind up happening to them. Yeah, but right. Exactly. Into that haunted Hollywood. Like what what uh, do you have any stories well, so one of the ones that always stood out to me because people are like so obsessed with like Marilyn Monroe and what happened to what happened to her. And um, now I don't remember the name of the hotel, but it's like right. It's like right in Hollywood. And it's Cecil? really close. The Cecil Hotel. I don't know if it's the Cecil Hotel. Well, I don't know what it's called now, um, but it's this hotel that supposedly is haunted by um, Marilyn Monroe and I think Clark Gable and a couple of other celebrities for some reason go back to this hotel. So it's an old hotel that was built in like the 20s or something. And um, one of the one of the, the room that was supposedly Marilyn or, or that is supposed to be haunted by Marilyn is is like a little um like it's like a little separate almost like kind of like over by the pool and so this is not my experience this is my sister my sister was going down there and I was like can you go to this hotel like just at least eat lunch there or something and of course it's like really expensive and so she and her boyfriend stayed one they they stayed somewhere real cheap for like three nights and then they stayed there for just one night right and um, it wasn't like, but her room looked over the pool so she could see this room. And she said, I don't know, maybe someone was staying there, but I looked out the window and it was, I couldn't sleep. And it was like, for some reason, I just got up and I thought, well, maybe I'll go swimming. Will they kick me out if I go swimming at three in the morning? Mm-hmm. And she, she opened the window to look just to see like the pool, you know, if there's any one at the pool and um, that room which they had told her was not occupied, a light went on. And so she was convinced that, you know, she had done her paranormal investigation for me, which was totally awesome. Yeah. I was like, oh, now I'd like to go and stay there. Um, So let's see, what are there? There's that wonderful cemetery um, where like all of the, all of the filmmakers and stars are, um, you know, Ed Wood and all of those guys are all buried there. Bella Lugosi. one of them has a, is it, is it Clark Gable? One of them has a dog. I can't remember off the top of my head now. It's been so long, but um, one of them has a dog that actually returns to his grave, kind of like the, like the famous one in Scotland, but comes by the grave. So that it's, that's the forever Hollywood cemetery. That's supposed to be very, very haunted. And it's very, very popular cemetery because they'll do like, um, they do movies there in the summertime, like outside, you know, they'll show them on the side of Bela Lugosi's crypt and, and such. Um, some of the more interesting stories I've heard since writing that book of like a few friends that live in that area where they've gone and they've toured a house and they've seen something. Um, a good friend of mine is kind of like a, like a, he puts on like, um, kind of like gothic and vampire 
balls and stuff. Oh, like themed parties. Yep. Yep. And, and he's been to a couple of things in some of the bars there. And, you know, it's always interesting because if you're like in a situation where people are like straight up dressed like vampires and then you see something, you're kind of like, well, are you sure it wasn't someone that was dressed like a vampire? But, um, one of the stories was just, they were outside this bar, um, I think it's called like bar sinister or something like that and they saw this person who was kind of like following them around and no one recognized them and they were really pale and I always um just like the way that they were extra tall and um the person kind of reappeared a couple times when they were um at a couple other places later during that week and so I I always kind of wondered if they had like you know they were attracted not that they were attracting weirdos, but that they were attracting these kind of like whatever they whatever they were kind of felt like they could be seen. Part, part of it. Yeah, yeah. Cause I I I I I said take it as a compliment. Right. You know, if something like that appears out of the shadows, it means and you see it, it means that you're trusted with that. You're not gonna harm it. Because I actually, I kind of think it's like what your parents tell you about spiders, right? Like they're more afraid of you. Well, my mom told me about spiders. They're more afraid of you than you are of them or like little creatures and things like that, right? right. It's like, no, it's more afraid of you than, than you are of them. And I kind of think that about like the paranormal in general, but just like, I think that when we see things, we should take it as like a blessing, even if it scares us because one, it might scare us just because it's so unusual. Two, it might scare us because it's actually scary. But it's it's trusting you with its not with that knowledge somehow. So it knows that you have the fortitude of mind to separate, you know, that from being able to like do your job or whatever. Right. And um, you know, I always feel like there's some kind of like message coming through. But I'm fortunate in that the things that I've had have never. Um, I've never felt threatened. I've not always felt like cool, <laughs> but I've not ever really felt threatened um, to the point where, you know, I felt like I needed to do something drastic, like banishing or anything like that. Right. But you had more practice than other people. Well, probably you know, you know just came at, yeah, because, yeah, I just kind of had some tools. Like I, I, we were saying at the beginning, like one of the things that, I think parents do a lot is they'll say like, Oh, it was just a nightmare. It was just a dream. And I don't know if you ever listen. do you ever listen to Jim Harold's campfire stories? Do you ever listen no. to that show? No. It okay. So that's a podcast that is all like people that call and share their stories. And so like, if you ever like those like ghost to ghost episodes yeah. of coast to coast, it's basically like that. And, um, you have all these people who it's, it's really good. It's a good podcast and you'll, no, he'd be it, a great person for you to interview. Right. It's it really interesting. What, uh, what Dave does on SOR where he has that guy come in and tell those stories. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. No, except for he reads, he'll read stories that people submit what Dave's doing like that, um, that, that segment and he'll yes. the guy will read like um a paranormal story that someone submitted this is actually like he um jim harold takes the the calls from people who have had experiences and then that's what you you're listening to like people tell their stories right okay. and over and over again the theme is 
Like I thought I was the only one in my family that saw it. And then when I grew up, it turned out my sister had this experience. My mom had this experience and no one wanted to talk about it. But my point being that we will like dismiss children as making things up. And actually they're the ones that know what's going on. Right. And we're too afraid to see it because we already are like so worried about so many other things, you know, our grasp right. on reality is, is tenuous at best. Right. I think that uh, <laughs> yeah. as adults, we're blocked or we create ways to block certain things where kids, yeah. their minds are more open yeah. and yeah. they perceive things even more than we can. Yeah. And if you tell them that what they're seeing isn't real and they mm. keep seeing it, you're undermining their ability to process that. Exactly. And I'm sure that you've run into that because you said that your children see these shadow people and that's a struggle, right? Because it's like, you don't want them to be scared, but you're not entirely sure what it is yourself. Right. And so what can you do? And, and, and it totally depends on their age too, right? Just like right. anything, like you could talk to them about it in a different way, but when they're like five years old and they're crying, right. you're just like, okay, (laughs) what do I do in this moment to make you feel better, but not make, you know, because you don't want them, you want to give them the tools to deal with the, that other realm, because uh, not surprisingly, your kids are, are gifted with that ability. Well, the weird thing is that they aren't scared because they said Mm. that when they see these things, they get the sense that they're being like observed and, hmm. and it doesn't mess with them. They just see them. So, so, but that, that's so interesting because I wonder if you had been given the like clean, positive template that they've been given, that if you, if that would make you feel better about, you know what I mean? Like if you right. had you as a parent, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> Yeah, because my, my sister experience- and I just said that to each other the other day. She was like, oh, to be a kid again. And she was like, actually, maybe not. And I was like, <laughs> unless we were our own parents, like right. that would be really fun. Because <laughs> yeah, the only difference is that my experiences aren't great. Right. I, I, I get right. attacked by these things. My, my yeah. kid. And I don't know if it's the same. Yeah. Well, so then you have that concern that that's going to start happening to them and how do you protect them and they're that's 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 it's a it's interesting it's a very complex um issue of like you know paranormal parenting and I think a lot of a lot of people really experience that you know it's like well sometimes you get creative and you make like a a spray or whatever but um yeah it's interesting because I I try not to like um I try not to push too much of that agenda on my son, but at the same time, like, you know, this is the household you grow up in, right? Like you, you see the, you, you see how, how big of a deal Halloween is. Has he had experiences that he's told you? He's never not, not actually. No, I don't believe so. Um, He's definitely has some pretty strong dreams but um, he's never seen anything that he doesn't, I've caught him talking to things and not being conscious of it. Like I've caught him in the other room, you know, fully upright with his eyes open, sort of sleepwalking, but no, he's not, he's not ever really had any um, experiences that I know of. And I'm sure he would tell me because, you know, he knows what I do. Right. Well, you know, you came up with your third idea, which is paranormal parenting. Paranormal parenting. (laughs) Bad advice from good people or good (laughs) advice from bad people. (laughs) 
So the, the next uh, chapter that I, that I was interested in is Tales from the Cryptids. What can you tell us about that? Because I'm a cryptid oh, fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the that actually hasn't had, you know, inspired, inspired me to go on and research a lot of other, uh, a lot of other cryptids. I mean, the cryptid world, honestly, the fairy world and the cryptid world are kind of the same world. Yeah. I mean, basically, it's this world of things that don't quite fit into the human or animal category. And it can be everything from, you know, the Loch Ness Monster to, um, you know, uh, to Dogman or Bigfoot. I think Bigfoot is probably the most well-known and the most elusive of all of the cryptids really the king of cryptids he's the king of cryptids he really is yeah yeah because um and i have not ever had a anything happen with bigfoot but i have a cousin that lives in the um in this pretty rural part of a different part of california and both he and they he and his son also go up to like um like do you know where ukiah is no, but is it like anywhere near like the Pacific Northwest or? Yeah, the- so it's like, um, the, so if you kind of just go like straight up from <clears throat> Sacramento and then over toward the coast a little bit, uh, kind of up in, yeah, in, in Northern California. And then some of their experiences have been up in Oregon. They have a piece of property that they like to go oh, okay. fishing yeah. on that's very rural and it's just like a campsite. And they've had all kinds of stuff, but they've had it also on their um, property in, in Northern California. And both um, my cousin and his son have told me things. And so what his, his son told me some pretty interesting stories the last time I saw him, which was probably about three or four years ago, it was a family reunion. And he was, I guess, like only 15. And um, he said that they saw something um, at the base of their property, like they have horses. And so, the, and, and the fence had been like, like ripped open wow. and they had seen something down there. And then a lot of people, them included have like, they hear the Bigfoot, like, I guess the Bigfoot has like a very specific cry um, or call. I've never had, a, but let's, I mean, keep in mind that the majority of my life I spent in San Francisco. So <laughs> yeah, I, I saw some big hairy feet, but I did not, well, I did not see Bigfoot. You never know. Cause I mean, I live in central Florida. I've been here for like over 20 years and I didn't know that there's a Bigfoot creature called the skunk ape out here. Oh, right. I just learned, learned about that more recently. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's definitely some some yeah. It's its own. It's like um, it's like its own whatever. It's like a hybrid of the of the Bigfoot, and it's from what I talked to. Uh, I think it's episode four, an individual who's a researcher out here. His name is Dave Sedoti, and he actually, you know, studies it out here in Florida. Yeah, and there's different like myths about it, but he yeah. said that they're not small as some people project like small being like bigfoot in north california or or in california in general or the pacific northwest are known to go as big as 15 feet yeah like really big right huge and then the myth is that here in florida they get maybe eight feet which is still huge but he said that even out here there they can reach 15 feet because he's found huge footprints he's got pictures and everything um but i mean i've had experiences like where something was pacing me. Oh. Where, yeah. And that's like a, a, a sign 
of a Bigfoot, but it, I didn't know. I don't know if it was. I'm just saying it's just something that That's happened what it felt to me. Like, yeah, it, it just felt like something was pacing me. Whatever, you know, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it makes you wonder, though, like, uh, are they as like they're probably really curious about us. But if they know anything about humans, they're they're well within their rights to hide. Oh, yeah, we, we're crazy. <laughs> well and then the other the other question too is like and i think this might be where like maybe like cryptids and things that are considered more magical creatures or fairies like there's this idea um and uh, that you know fairies live in this like their own realm and they sort of make themselves known there's these sort of like otherworldly creatures and i i think i honestly think bigfoot can do that i think that they have that same cloaking ability that other creatures do that other kind of like cryptids and fairies do but i don't know that that's a widespread belief i think there's the idea that they're like there all the time and they'd be visible if we could just find them and i that may well be one of our big mistakes assuming that they're just there hiding from us um and not you know not that they can just go like boom i'm invisible right. but there's a way that they can cross into this like whatever it's like a you know, i don't even know if it's really a parallel dimension because i'm not sure i really believe about i i just like though i don't know if i really believe that it's a parallel dimension so much as it's all just like the same dimension and we just Correct. have this really linear narrow view of it so we just don't have the vision to see all the things around us or we we don't have it all the time which is probably good because to be honest with you if every time you opened your door and you saw a bigfoot or every time you went to the bathroom to brush your teeth you saw like a ghost in the mirror you know, eventually you would not be able to like function. You couldn't go to the grocery store, you know, <laughs> couldn't do normal things. Yeah. Couldn't do normal <laughs> things. Yeah. You can only do paranormal things. So, so th there's a book called um, natural causes of lycanthropy, magical creatures. Now, did you co-author, you yeah. co-authored that, correct? So that's an excerpt from, uh, so that's one of the eBooks that I did. And the guy that wrote it, the guy that it's an excerpt from this book on werewolves that was written in like 1885, I think. And the guy who wrote the book um, was just like this real believer in werewolves and did a bunch of different, um, a bunch of research. And um, so then I kind of like took that and ran with it. And I have some, you know, base knowledge of like plants. And so one of the natural causes of, uh, of it is um, drinking from lycanthropic streams. So you would drink water, toxic water that would then put you in this state that would cause you to um, like transform. And one of the underlying themes of this whole book um, I think it's, does it, it's Sabine Baring Gould, I believe that is the yes. one who wrote the, um, the book is called the book of werewolves and he's really interesting. He was a reverend and, um, traveled the world, you know, preaching the word of God and also researching werewolves the whole time. So wow. it's kind of interesting. Yeah. He wrote <laughs> the, he wrote that, um, the hymn onward Christian soldiers, like that's the dude. So he also, you know, unknown and widely unpublished is this book all about werewolves. And one of the, his underlying themes from the get-go that, that gives credence to the belief in werewolves 
is the idea that humans have the capacity to transform into bloodthirsty monsters. And what is a werewolf but a bloodthirsty monster? And so he continues to bring examples of times in which people have like, you know, lost their minds essentially and committed crimes, become serial killers are like, Mm -hmm. serial killers are on one extreme, you know, road rage is another extreme, like just where you lose, you literally lose your mind. Like you don't, you're not your rational thought process. And there's a lot of things that can trigger that trauma, um, war, um, you know, p- trying to protect something that you care about, uh, hormones, drinking something hallucinogenic, inadvertently consuming something hallucinogenic, purposely consuming something hallucinogenic, or um, with amphetamines in it, like the berserkers were thought to do when they went into battle, the Nordic berserkers who were where we get the term going berserk, they would right. pump themselves up before battle. And they basically go into battle with just like this, like really like ferocious madness. Um, And some people believe that they were consuming tea that had amphetamines in it. And then the collective, you know, that mob consciousness of just like getting really angry. Um, But I mean, there's like all of these. So anyway, his point is that we, we have this capacity within us as humans to just sort of snap and that in itself is what it takes to shape shift and transform into a werewolf. So the idea being that it's possible, just like those, those women can train themselves to be underwater for 10 minutes, we can go into these, these murderous rages. And that's, that's that, that um, beastly capacity that we have. Going primal, so, essentially, right? Yeah, and then there's actually like a disease called lycanthropy that you get where you totally actually think you're a werewolf. And really? then there's another one, yeah, and people have been at, probably to this day are still institutionalized for it. They 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 straight up believe that they're werewolves and it's called, like, you know, it's, it's the disease of lycanthropy. The other one is where people are excessively hairy and that's absolutely like a hormone, um, you know, it's usually genetic and it's a hormone imbalance that is causing like, I mean, some people are hairier than others. We know this, but this is like where someone gets, you know, um, just like hair all over their body. And I, I also um, think that there's the idea of like, you know, think about like teen wolf, but yeah. it, it really makes a lot of sense, right? Cause we were talking earlier about teenagers not having any control over their bodies or like they're, they're like, they, they can't really like, they can't really control things. They don't have a lot of control. They don't have a lot of like, yeah, yeah. And so there's that like kind of, you know, extreme, um, the extreme behavior and that the idea of transforming into a werewolf is a way of demonstrating like the far end of where you could go with that versus like what you want to have happen within the group, which is like, these feelings are normal, but um, don't go out and kill anyone. (laughs) <laughs> i know there's a lot there's a lot there with with werewolves. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so in your estimation because uh you know like we said uh bigfoot's the queen the king of cryptids and it's not until lately that 
you have all these people coming out with Dogman sightings. Not that Dogman's brand new. Dogman is, has existed. But is there a difference between Dogman and werewolves? Are they the same? Are they different? It's so funny. I actually have this argument with Dave because um, <laughs> I think they are. I I guess the, the fundamental difference um, being that people think that Dogman's just Dogman all the time and a werewolf is a shapeshifter that transforms and can be other things, including a human. But I think they're the same thing. I think it's a new word for a werewolf because it's half man. And we have zero evidence that Dogman doesn't transform into something perfectly normal. But, you know, you got the chupacabra. You've got all kinds of like, you got the trickster coyote who's a shapeshifter. You have a lot of things in the canine family, including werewolves um, from around the world. So it, I, I wouldn't say that it's a, that Dogman's exactly a werewolf because it could be from like a place where there aren't any wolves, but essentially, yeah, I think that it's the same like category. They're, they're all sort of like canine shapeshifters that are vaguely humanoid. And I think it's a case of the words we use to describe it. And how would you know anyway? Like if you see this thing that's like half man, half canine, like, how, how do you know yeah. maybe is dog man or it's a werewolf i mean it's it's i'd have to see one i've never seen one so i'd have to see one to see if it actually like changed my mind you know if it's really a different thing but i do think it has to do with you know back in the you know 1600s everything was either a vampire or a werewolf or a witch those were your explanations for things and now we have a lot of different you know um, like you said, vocabulary, we have different words to describe these things. Right. A lot of them are the same things, but they're described with different terms. Yeah. Yeah. Because I like, agree. I agree. I think we'll, we'll, werewolves and dogmen are the exact same thing. Totally. Right. Thank you. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, like, uh, here's, a, here's another example of just like using different words to describe something. I was once reading, um, I was doing research for that fairy book and I was reading about um, this particular kind of like house. It wasn't a brownie. It was another kind of like domestic fairy. And um, I was actually reading this story about this family that had one. And it was like a, a fictional story or a fictionalized story. It was an anecdotal story. And this collection um, from the probably like, probably from the, early 1900s and the story was basically this like kid kept waking up with scratches um they kept, said it was a kid but it was probably more like a tween or something and the kid just kept waking up and it would have like pinched you know it looked like it had been pinched and it had scratches on its body and I was like reading that and I was thinking man that like really fits with a lot of descriptions of of like poltergeists, right? Like people describing they have a poltergeist. And then I started researching a little more and it was like, oh yeah, and this thing like moves stuff around in your house. And um, it makes like really loud noises sometimes. And I was just like, okay, I'm not saying for sure that poltergeists are, you know, these like hobgoblins and hobgoblins are poltergeists, but it's and maybe what this thing is, they were just calling it a hobgoblin and they had a poltergeist all along, but it was just interesting to me that I was like, boy, that sounds so much like what people today would call a, a poltergeist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have the, we have like all of this popular culture that has built up in our consciousness as well. So. 
Well, I think everything's connected, right? We, I think in this conversation that you and I have had, we've made, uh, we've alluded to that everything being connected in the paranormal, yeah. right? So yeah. I have this theory about like the same, almost very similar poltergeist and with Bigfoot, right? Okay, so when you talk about like ghosts and, and ghostly activity, right? You hear disembodied voices or disembodied mm-hmm. sounds. Mm-hmm. Things get thrown at you or they move. You have uh, sounds that are made. Um, w- why can't it, there be ghosts, let's say like Bigfoot ghosts out in the wilderness where you see where people have said like they've heard disembodied sounds, but they can't see where it's coming from or trees shaking, but they don't see a figure or they might see a figure, but it's a dark figure and then it winds up disappearing. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like a lot of these activities are very similar. It's just they're di- explained differently and they're different, like titles are put on them. You know? Yeah, titles are put on them, but it also could be what someone might call just like someone might straight up just say, oh, that's a witch. Or right. that's the like, that's the witch of the woods. It always chucks things at us or- right. So absolutely. And then people get real stuck on those titles. That's the problem. The titles aren't so much the problem because we all want to be able to like call something something. But when you get stuck on those titles of like, this has to be this and not that. And then you you stop being able to see the parallels and the parallels are really what are so fascinating. You know, that's really like, I mean, if you believe in ley lines and you believe on like these grids where there's like energy grids and then there's those were important places for rituals and then churches were built on them and there's still rituals there. Like if you if you look at the the world in more of like a grid or a circular fashion in that way, then you 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 see how important those those parallels really are. And then we made the connection, too, with uh pukas and possible aliens because somebody yeah. drew a picture and it wound up looking like an alien yeah so, with like big old almondy weird eyes right, i mean right. in a weird little creepy nose and things it's <laughs> <laughs> like what what's happening barla we, we're gonna figure out in the, in the end we really don't know anything but <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, i think we've already figured that out right <laughs> i mean if that's part of that's also you know rule number one in parenting it's the very first thing you learn yeah, you don't get the you know manual. nothing. <laughs> you don't get the manual, you know. Nope, nope. Um, let's let's get into <laughs> vampires. Do you believe in vampires? Are they real? Like, what's the history on va- vampirism? Yeah, I I believe in vampires. I mean, I know a lot of people that identify as vampires, and they identify for a variety of reasons. Um, they may identify for like you know uh, community reasons, aesthetic reasons. Um, uh, ritual and magical reasons or all of those things combined you know um just like some people like subgenres of music or like a gothic community you have a lot of goths that gravitated toward like the vampire community natural natural transition right (laughs) um same makeup (laughs) um but you, you there's definitely like a very um uh, high level approach to vampirism in that way. And like one of, one of the people that I'm friends with is this wonderful guy, his name is Father Sebastian and he's a fangsmith. And he just, I really like that he doesn't try and say like all vampires are this or that, but if you want to be part of this living vampire community, these are the kind of like things that you accept. And it's a bit of an initiatory process. Um, 
as you become awakened, but it's very rooted in um, like a lot of just base magical principles and intention and sort of like creating this beautiful world that you want to live in. So there's that vampire. Um, there's the psychic vampires, responsible and irresponsible. And those are those people that um, feed on you. They're, they're draining. Um, they'll deliberately feed. Some people, th those are the irresponsible ones. The responsible ones are the ones that ask your permission and you grant them permission. And here's that same idea of, um, you know, sort of a lord of a manor uh, getting some peasant to come and, and, and let them sort of feed on their, on their blood or their life force. So that's, so there's like some energy work that goes on there. There's a lot of energy work in, in vampirism. Um, and, you know, people have, have written extensive books just about like being a psychic vampire. I think that, um, as far as like the like myths of vampires, like what we have just as with werewolves, there's a lot built in culture and um, popular culture that uh, that kind of has have colored the way we we view vampires now. Um, Bram Stoker's Dracula is is based on several things that were happening at the time, including, um, you know, in Scotland and in Ireland and um, uh, in particular. Um, they were doing a lot of secret medical research and they were doing this on cadavers and it was not sanctioned like by the church. And so some of the universities even were paying people to go and like rob graves so they could have right. cadavers for people to, to work on. And so there's this very like, kind of like gruesome underbelly of like medical history. And, um, you know, he's Irish and that was certainly happening there. And then you have... Um, some of the things like, you know, the vampire, like sitting up in its grave like this, correct? right? Like that's how Nosferatu rises and that's how Bela Lugosi kind of rises up. So that, you know, rigor mortis can cause when you open a coffin, it can cause a body to like spring up. It's just one of the parts of the, the process. And people were frequently laid to rest with their um, arms across their chest. Right. Um, you also have that, that fear of grave robbing and things like that happening to your loved ones. Um, so I think people would pry open coffins and, and, and then are you going to say I was in there and I was just trying to like get the body or, you know, aunt Zelda's ring. No, you're going to say there's a vampire in that cemetery. Do not go under there. Do not go in there under any circumstances. And also like the average person did not understand, like there wasn't, um, you know, we didn't have like whatever, like preservation and stuff. So the average person didn't understand the, the decomposition process and the decomposition process of someone who's buried in the ground versus someone who's laid out in a cold, you know, box in a cold crypt in a cold climate, you know, in the middle of winter or something like the decom decomposition process is different. So you're expecting it to be this like rotten thing and you open it up and they look, their hair is still grown, right? We didn't know that those kind of things still happened. So there's some like of that kind of mythology in there, but then there's also some stuff that like is a real head scratcher. Um, you know, the idea of uh, blood just being this like ingredient that will make you younger 
or that is, um, uh, you know, a way to kind of like, yeah, just like restore your health and things like that. So you have um, those ideas of like bathing in blood and bloodletting. And then, you know, you also have people who did have a sort of relationship where they, um, and, and where they actually did, you know, like the Romani, the gypsies would live on land and in exchange for living on the land, they would send someone up to the, 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 the vampire Lord and the vampire Lord would keep this person, usually a young woman, suspiciously, right? And then they would send them back and they would be able to move on and, the, you know, they could live, live in peace on the land. So there's, there's that kind of relationship with like the Vlad Dracula. And then, of course, basing it on that, you know, horrific Vlad the Impaler, who was known to be a really gruesome and brutal leader, um, you know, kind of, kind of solidified the idea of vampires being these like, people who were preying on others. But there's, in Irish mythology, the vampires are very ghost-like and um, can scare you to death, essentially. They can really like um, take the life out of you because they can drain you of, of uh, your life force. Right. So, and I think there are stories like that around the world, really, of these kind of, they're the more malevolent entities that are kind of after you but i also think vampires get a bad rap i think they got burned a lot like witches and werewolves and um especially in like england during medieval times it was like oh must have been a vampire yeah must have been a witch it was like you know one of the three if you're if you're handsome and dark haired you were a, a vampire and if you were like uh haggy and old you were a witch and you know if you were Stereotypes. You were hairy. You were <laughs> <a werewolf. laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's bad, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not good to be hairy. So, yeah. so not all vampires look like Tom Cruise and Antonio Banderas. <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't know. If you look at some of these pictures from these vampire balls, you see quite a right. few. Yeah, you see quite a few looking like that. But I mean, <laughs> that's part of it too. Is the the charm the charm and, and there are females as well in, in stories and, and in mythology that were very, um, that are, are very beautiful and have a lot of control. They have a lot of control right. over your mind and over what you choose to do. Right. right. Wasn't there like a queen, Queen Bathory, I believe that she used oh, to. Oh yeah. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bathory. Yes. I've actually heard some pretty interesting theories about her. So she was the one who um, is said to have basically kept all of these like young girls. Um, she was like really, really mean to all of her servants. And she supposedly kept them and let their blood and like bathed in their blood right. and to, to stay young. But I heard some like really interesting stuff um, on another podcast more recently. Um, I was like on Aaron Mankey's lore and he, he did one about specifically about her. And one of the things that he pointed out, which was like super light bulb for me, because you see this time and time again, but um, she had a lot of power and land and a whole castle. And the person who was in charge of her arrest was like her first cousin, like the male descendant who everything would have been left to oh okay so while he wasn't arguing that she wasn't mean he was arguing that um well he was just presenting the evidence that perhaps she was accused of things and then everybody just got on board because they didn't like her because she wasn't very nice 
<laughs> and you see that story again and again with with women who were accused of witchcraft is like oh guess who accused you of witchcraft the daughter of the guy whose land adjoins yours and wants that property for himself suspicious right so there was there's that element to her story which i think is really interesting um whether she bathed in the blood or not you know i don't think anyone can ever really prove that but anecdotally that's the story that she would like use the she wouldn't kill them she would use their blood but then the worst part about it is she was basically sentenced to like be imprisoned in her own house like for the rest of her life and basically just like house arrest everything every yeah original house arrest but it, she was stripped of everything mm. and he got everything the, the cousin so that's super that's as my son would say that's sus setup yeah yeah definitely all right so there's there's like i don't there's like two events that that go to, that come to mind when it comes to vampire vampirism and it's been linked to vampirism one is out there on uh i believe in the bay area back in the days when they started to build the railroads and you had the whole human trafficking and slave trade yeah. particularly people from Asia, um, there was underground tunnels there and oh, yeah. where they would funnel them in. And there was like a, a, this thing where people would wind up missing and mm -hmm. they linked that to vampirism. That's one of them. And then there's another one where you had the missing kids from Seattle. I don't know mm. if you heard of that, um, but I heard that that might've been linked to vampirism as well. I mean, I've heard a couple of like, I'm not sure if it's the same thing about the missing kids in Seattle, but I've heard that theory before about like a couple different like missing persons, like it being linked to vampires or just like paranormal entities. And um, so just to address the San Francisco thing, so that like they, that was called getting Shanghai is what they would call it. And there were like these things called Shanghai tunnels and they were totally like they would get somebody who would be really drunk or whatever. And they would basically like wait until they were too drunk to deal and they would like open a trap door and the person would fall into this like basement and then there would be this tunnel and they would also traffic in especially women. They would traffic them in as part of the, the sex trade and from, from Asia, China in particular. So that's definitely a, definitely a thing. But then um, like, as far as like the under, you know, I mean, there's like the underground part of it and all of the um, kind of the darkness there. Um, I mean, I don't know how, how vampire-y it really would be. I think, so my problem with attributing missing persons to paranormal things and that is that I think that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a way to sweep it to sweep it away and like for example the rash the the like irrational number of missing um indigenous women in this country and in canada like to say that that's paranormal is just like you know it's just too it, it it's 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 not, a, it's not a good way to, I just don't think it's a good approach because I think it's already bad enough and people are already not doing anything. So then, you know, if you start saying it's like some kind of creepy entity or abduction, I just, I, it's, I, I, it's a, it's a thing that kind of annoys me in the paranormal community when people start, start um, suggesting that, you know, missing persons, it's entirely possible. I mean, I cannot dismiss it, right? We are talking about the unknown, so I can't dismiss it, but I just know that, um, 
I mean, we know from the history in this country how women and people of color have been treated. And so we know that they that that's too convenient to just say that, you know, something was uh, was preying upon them. I mean, what was preying upon them were like the rich white men. That's who were preying. Those were those are the real vampires. <laughs> Sucking them dry. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just sucking them dry. <laughs> Taking every last bit of gold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so before I end, uh, Varla, and I appreciate you doing this. Um, I told you I have two daughters and uh, we still live in a, a male dominated world, you know, and I know it, it probably yeah. wasn't easy being in the paranormal field with it being male dominated. What advice would you have for, uh, you know, a female or really anyone that's trying to get into this field, but, uh, you know, probably going to face some obstacles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think like the mentality has changed at least to acknowledge that more, but you still, the paranormal field is male dominated and there are certain people who are kind of gatekeepers and women in particular are labeled as um, sort of cuckoo. Um, it it, within the paranormal community Um, there for some reason you can have the exact same theories as someone else but you're labeled as like fringe or um, you know completely um, off the rocker and there's a couple of women that I've been on their shows and I find them absolutely delightful I completely understand what they're talking about and um, that you know but the experiences that they've had they've they've been made to feel as if they're you know complete lunatics, but they have the exact same theories. So there's definitely a gender disparity there. Absolutely. Um, I do think that there's also like, even if you're, you know, of any, of any gender, it's really, um, you know, I think it's, we're talking about the unknown. There are people who are popular and are known for researching it, but nobody is an expert. Nobody is an expert. I'm not an expert, you know, like I just know what I've experienced and what, what I've researched, but I'm not an expert on the paranormal. It's paranormal, right? Like I'm no more of an expert than a person who's had multiple experiences throughout their life. You know, the difference between me and them is that I'm super nerdy and I read a bunch of books about it and I write books about it. But, I, you know, it, we're talking about something that is unknown and, and essentially invisible for the most part. And so anyone who goes around and says that they're an expert, now I, that doesn't mean people do not have credentials and aren't fascinating and wonderful people to talk to. And, um, but, the, but they, if you're entering this, field, you know, you're entering it because you know something and you're looking for something. And so I I just feel like that's the one thing, like every once in a while, you'll encounter someone who really dismisses other people's theories. And that I think is, you know, I mean, that's honestly, it's laughable because you're taught, you're literally talking about like Atlantis and fairies, like, you know, (laughs) Right. So we, we only we only have so much evidence except for our own our own lives. So I think that that's probably it, really. And um, and everybody carries their own kind of baggage into the situation. And the paranormal in particular is very sensitive to that. 
also within the paranormal community, you tend to have people who are sensitive and I don't mean sensitive, like emotionally sensitive, but sensitive in terms of be, having like extrasensory perception um, and maybe even being empathic. And so as young women in particular, be very mindful of like who you're actually allowing into your space and your, your mental space, because as an empath or as somebody who's sensitive and, and aware um, you know, there's always going to be someone who's going to kind of take advantage of that. And so just be conscious of like, you know, being alone in a, in a haunted house at night. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to your father. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, oh. The last thing is what's, what's next for you? What's next for Valor Ventura? What are you working on a book? Documentary? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, do document. No, um, I, ha I actually am working on a podcast. I've been working on it for quite a while okay, awesome. and it's, um, just, it's just me telling stories and occasionally interviewing people, but it's really, um, it's really just kind of about like cool, weird stories that I've come upon. Um, uh, a lot of it is like supernatural and spiritualist women's history in a way. So some of awesome. these like when I was working on the most recent book, which is the paranormal parlor book, I just, I just found so many interesting characters. And one of the things that I love the most is that there are a lot of people who were spiritualists and like a lot of women in particular who were spiritualists. Um, and they were able to use the psychic arts as a way of like breaking out of like their normal confines of society. But there was also actually a lot of overlap between abolitionists and spiritualists which I think is really um, interesting. So there's some of those stories that like I've touched on in my books that I'm just exploring and, and telling in a, you know, whatever 30 minutes or 45 minutes or however long it'll be. So I'm working on that. Um, I'm just trying to like record several episodes in advance because I'm like totally not the kind of person that can keep a regular schedule. So I figured I'll just like much better marathoning under a deadline. Um, and then I'm working on a book that's more about like plant and fairy lore and then um, a little bit of like fiction here and there. And um, I don't know, I tried to sell a book about pirates that didn't really like, didn't take. So um, don't give up. Think that. Yeah, I know. And then there's a couple of people that have talked about collaborating on um, some different kind of like kind of along the lines of like the the cryptids or or um the banshees and vampires just like all, like a gathering of stories right. um with like a different theme but i mean i've covered like i kind of covered a lot of the creatures yeah, you covered so. a lot of stuff. <laughs> just like stuff, yeah. oh what is next <laughs> here's write a novel <laughs> so yeah that's why i was kind of um curious about your fantastic um microphone there because yeah i'm just like i'm really um not very um podcasty but i also feel like it's a good way to kind of share some of the stories that aren't written and um you know i love that aspect of storytelling the the oral part you know that just like right. listening to other people's stories and and telling them and yeah so working on that raising a little hockey player <laughs> oh really yeah. what position is he a winger or is he a center defense goalie it's a goaltender yeah i, I play i played goalie and in, in you New did York. i did oh, yeah he loves yeah. the rangers actually that's his favorite team i'm a, I'm a rangers yeah. fan yeah <laughs> i started yeah. out as a, as a winger and then uh our goalie got hurt so since i i i'm i'm a baseball player 
and I tried hockey. So I had friends that were like, hey, come play hockey with us. Yeah. So we oh. played on a team. So I was a winger, but I, I sucked. So the goalie got hurt. I went in as a goalie. And I guess since I'm good at catching. You're baseball, natural. Yeah. I just was natural, so. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's awesome. It's great. That's great. Funny. <laughs> All right, Varla. Oh, and another thing. I, you know, I tried looking you up on IMDb because I thought I saw you maybe like on one of these TV shows on the Travel Channel. Like, oh, I was on. OK, so I was on um, CBS Sunday morning. Right. That um, I know. Yes. With with Faith Saley and sh and um, uh, she was interviewing me about mermaids. And right. so but I don't think I'm on IMDb. I don't even know how to. No, I'm, I'm just wondering, how come you're not on any of these paranormal shows with all the knowledge that you have? You I know? don't know. I've never been I've never been asked and I don't have an agent that pitches me is probably. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we need to start a campaign. <laughs> yeah, well, especially now that you don't. I mean, people are so used to doing things remotely too you know so that's like uh not as much of a barrier you know because it used to be like even on coast to coast they still they ask you to have a landline and then really? in the middle of covid they asked me to come on and i was and so what i would do is uh, i don't have a landline anymore so like i would honestly i would like go get a cheap hotel for four hours in the night mm -hmm. and use that landline and um sometimes hotel rooms don't even have phones anymore so it was like so the, it was the middle of COVID and I was like I really don't want to go to the like crappy hotel by my house you know right. and and she was like you know what just just do you know cell phone it just cell phones used to cut out a lot more than they do now they sound pretty good right. so I don't know what you know it's been a while since I've been invited on there so we'll see what happens next time but um yeah never did yeah. get that landline <laughs> I hope to see you on some TV shows because I think you belong on those shows. I mean, there's other people that I see that don't have as much knowledge as you have, and I always wonder, like, how come I don't see her on these shows? But how that how those people get on there? Yeah, like I mean, <laughs> I guess it's knowing you got to know somebody. But thank you so much Probably, for doing this. Yeah, <laughs> you're awesome. Um, and I hope to do this again. If yeah, yeah, to. absolutely, it's my my pleasure. We we can. Um, do something maybe in like October or something like that around the Halloween. Yeah. Time oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be awesome. And I'm, and I look forward to hearing you again on SOR because I know you're on there a lot. So yeah. Yeah. He has me on every last Thursday right. um, of the month now, which is just really nice. Yeah. I really, yeah. It's, it's, it's been nice to have like a regular thing and also just, he's just a great host and yeah, he's awesome. It's a lot of fun. And the audience is so fun. Like they're so fun. They ask hilarious questions and they make really funny comments in the chat. And it's just, yeah, they're very kind. So, so that's nice, but thank you. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you um, having me on your show. Anytime, anytime. All right. So have a great rest of your day. All right. Yeah, you too. And take care of your children. So okay. Yes, I will. Thank take you. Take care. All right. Bye.